welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 21, a themed episode where we'll be exploring the proto-slasher precursor to a subgenre. You like that subtitle I put on there, Josh? Well, I could live without it. I gotta say, I like the emphasis you put on it. Well, thanks, so Josh can go to hell, basically. <laughs> but it's its own subgenre, right? Or it's not. Well, I guess this is what we'll be talking about. That very, yeah, that very exactly. thing, Josh, is what we're we'll be trying. It's to interesting determine. that it, because a subgenre was born from it, it's now kind of become its own subgenre. Whereas, yeah, at the time it probably wasn't. That's interesting. And what's more is since it kind of blossomed into a different thing, it seems like that's kind of extinct to me. Well, it ha- yeah, just by definition, it has to be right. 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 That's why I would call it a precursor to a subgenre. Although it'd be interesting to try to see if there are anything, any movies post 1980. You know, I guess, like I said, we're going to define it now that could fit into the like almost slasher. <laughs> Look or, at us. I mean, proto, you know, uh, the proto slash, I guess, is leading up to, but something that's that's not quite a slasher. But well, let's let's wait. Let's. I think there's a lot to discuss here. Let's wait till we get. Yeah, to we're not even in the ring yet, and we're <laughs> we're in this <laughs> discussion. I love it. So everybody can see how excited we are about this. So on Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Oh, Wolfman, Josh. (laughs) You nailed it that time. There you go. That was my favorite (laughs) one you've done. (laughs) <laughs> I got I to gotta come up with like a, sh- a, sh- a shock sound effect, but it's not going to work. Well, I, can't, we, I well, can't do it. That's what we actually need is a, we need to pre-record some sound effects and have Jay play them for our introduction. You got know. it. So the agenda for this episode, since this is a themed episode, this is what we consider our official format for horror movie podcast, just so people know. So we'll kick it off with our examination of Wolfman Josh's theme, the proto slasher, and then we'll wrap up tonight's episode with... Our feature review of The Purge, Anarchy, which just released in theaters this weekend. Okay, Josh, so this is Josh's episode. He chose our theme for the night. So, Josh, why don't you just kick it off and introduce us to this episode? Well, um, I think Slasher is uh, one of the most beloved and longest running and probably most done subgenres of horror. A lot of horror fans are are big fans of the slasher. And um, I think a lot of people who maybe aren't as familiar with film history, myself included, for many, many years, kind of thought the Halloween was the first slasher film. Um, it was definitely the most popular um, and kind of popularized the genre and, uh, and inspired a bunch of knockoffs. But um, there were many movies that came before Halloween um, that kind of led to that moment. In fact, even when Halloween was released, the word slasher didn't exist as a descriptor of movies. It wasn't until I think 1981 that people started using uh, the term slasher. Roger Ebert had a, a funny way of describing these types of movies. He called them dead teenager movies. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I always found that really funny. But um, now, was, was the term slasher derogatory? I don't know. It's it's interesting. I know, you know, there was obviously different and now because, you know, because we're so specific in our sh- subgenres, 
Um, these names don't all apply to the slasher, but I know at the time, you know, people would refer to them as uh, nasties or mm-hmm. um, uh, what's another one? Well, um, one? One of the first incarnations of that is the stock and slash, right? The stocking. Yes. Yeah, is, stock. is that a stocking slash? No, like stock a, as in S T A L K. Someone is stocking you like a right. sicko. Okay. Yes. So the, the, <laughs> a lot of the, these were initially called like the stock and slash films. And then they just shortened it to slasher. It's my understanding. It's interesting because you know black exploitation has become its own sort of subgenre, but that was uh, actually coined by the NAACP as a derogatory, uh, you know, categorization of those movies, which they saw as uh, really sort of demeaning, um, you know, for African Americans, and it just stuck as the name of the subgenre. And I was wondering if maybe slashers had the same sort of history. Mm. It may be so. It may be so. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, right. Just because if you think about it, it, it sounds almost like it could be. Yeah. Mm. So, t- so tonight we're going to talk about some of the movies that led up to the slasher movie. Um, maybe were influences on the slasher movie. We're going to touch uh, our toe into the subgenre of Italian giallo films, which really... Um, are kind of their own thing, (laughs) but they also really have a lot in common with the slasher. And I would suggest that they, um, come from the same place in terms of their inspirations. And so, or similar places. Mm -hmm. And so giallo is almost its own offshoot. Um, and we talked about, are there still proto slashers today? I would suggest the giallo genre has kind of continued in its own way and maybe veered a little bit, you know, over the years has kind of evolved into something different than a slasher. Um, so that that may be an example of like a continuing proto slasher in a way, but um, we are gonna we are going to review at least one giallo film, and we can talk about a couple others. Um, in terms of picking the films that we discussed tonight, it was hard. There, there's a lot of debate um, as to what exactly the first slasher film was. Um, one that people like to throw around is Thirteen Women, which was a, a movie from 1932. Um, I, I reviewed it in order to, to consider it for this, uh, this discussion. And I, I didn't personally find, um, that it had as much resemblance to a slasher as, uh, as some of the other movies that mm. we're going to talk about. I and agree. so, totally um, agree. there's others, dementia, um, mm. which I think is significant because, uh, Francis Ford Coppola directed it. Um, that was a strong consideration for me. Or sorry, Dementia 13. Mm-hmm. That was a strong consideration for me. That's a 1963 film. Um, but, oh, sorry, The Leopard Man. That's another one um, that people huh. sometimes consider an early slasher. One. That one I think is interesting because, um, and I was actually reading this on the Wikipedia page for The Leopard Man. Uh, this was one of the first American films, it says, to attempt even remotely realistic portrayal of a serial killer. Um, and, and the funny thing about that is that the term serial killer was not yet in use in 1943. <laughs> so we see a lot of um, evolution um, that leads us up to the slasher film. Um, but, um, but, you know, I've, I've picked four here that I thought would be good for discussion. Um, and, you know, and I have uh, different varying degrees of... Um, of a visibility, I think. I think some of these are obviously some of the most well-known, and others I think people haven't seen very much. Some of that has to do with you know 
the availability of release of these films. Um, but we'll, we'll go ahead and start with the earliest chronologically. And let's let's uh, kick it off with Peeping Tom, if we could. Yeah, and real quick, Josh, if you don't mind, just the, just the title of Proto Slasher. You know, I've mentioned that to a lot of people now, and they were really confused by that. Now, the term proto, like that preface, that prefix, is like, you know, an original or a first model, as in prototype, right? right. I mean, that's where uh-huh. that comes from, in case people aren't aware. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So let's go ahead and kick it off um, with peeping Tom. But first, let's let's talk about. I've prepared a few questions here for discussion, and one of them that I'd like to discuss is what was horror like before slashers, and if we noticed any, or if we can think of any, what filming techniques uh, were dominant during the era pre-slasher. And and I've got a couple ideas about this. I mean, I think for me, one of the big things is that um, thrillers and horror films before the slasher genre were largely about suspense and um, without as much on the payoff end of things. And a lot of that had to do with censorship. A lot of it had to do with the sensibilities of the time. Um, but I think one of the, the big distinctions with the slasher film, particularly of the eighties was the gore factor mm. and, right. and how much we're actually seeing of the payoff um, as, as opposed to earlier films. Well, and it's it's interesting because it wasn't even uh, the gore had been around since the '60s with Herschel Gordon Lewis, but very underground, you know, very um, right. independent, so very, you know, not too many people had seen it. The slashers of the '80s put it in the mainstream, and now everybody was shocked, you know, that oh wow, right. look at look at what they're doing in these in these movies. They'd actually been doing it for a while, and even some of, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get into it a little bit tonight with with the Jallos. Uh, so, you know, some of those um, had uh, had uh, some scenes of gore as well, but again, just either either foreign or independent, just not in the mainstream. And it's really the the slashers that uh, that that put that out in front of everybody, and and it got everybody up in arms all of a sudden. Yeah, and I think the Giallos were, I, in my opinion, the major influence on um, on the slasher genre. I'll just go ahead and say that now. I, I uh-huh. think. Um, Bava and later Argento were, were major influences on the guys that were, would later make um, slasher films. And so I think um, they're definitely worth talking about. Um, and yeah, and it was definitely the body count idea, the level of gore um, that was so prevalent in those movies and that didn't really exist before. Right. And also let's talk about the nature of the monsters before the the slashers and proto slashers. I mean, um, he, we had like traditional type monsters or like uh, un uh, inhuman or unhuman monsters, right? Like, uh-huh. um, like vampire types and and Godzilla and stuff that happened from like <laughs> science gone wrong. But then with the slashers, we really started getting basically a regular human being, an individual who's disturbed on one level or another. And that person starts killing. Right. Yeah. And I think you see that more in the proto slashers and particularly the giallos. Um, they function almost as these whodunit murder ministries, mm-hmm. you know, these black gloved stalking killer shots, as you mentioned, um, when you get to the heyday of the slasher in the eighties, 
you start having guys like Michael Myers and, and Jason Voorhees, then you kind of almost have the superhuman. And I think that right. almost characterizes the slasher as we think of it now, even more than maybe a human killer. But I think definitely um, that, that period of time between um, mm-hmm. and this, uh, the we're talking about, yeah, it was very human killers um, in that era, especially. And I think maybe it was the emergence of psychology in the mainstream as well. Um, I know when Hitchcock made psycho, that was a, no, that was a big buzz uh, surrounding mm-hmm. that. The idea I know for Hitchcock that um, people were going to see therapists and stuff that excited him. And, and what would they talk about in these sessions, you know? <laughs> and, um, and as I mentioned, you know, um, with the leopard man, the, when that came out in, I think 47, that term serial killer didn't even really exist yet. So I think the emergence of that as an idea in the national and international consciousness was uh, possibly playing a role in in these films um, coming out as well. Well said. When you were talking about the filmmaking techniques, we, we saw a lot of the subjective point of view where you get the point of view from the killer's perspective once yeah. Slasher started. And I assume you guys already mentioned that, whereas we didn't have that as much um, prior to the Slashers, right? Well, I, I just, I, both you and I both mentioned it briefly, but we haven't talked about it a lot. Again, I think this is a, style that is really popularized in Halloween. And I think when people referenced it in years to come and the slashers, they were kind of, you know, going back to Halloween, Halloween two as, uh, as their reference points. But yeah, really the giallos were doing it, um, very early on. And the first film we're going to talk about peeping Tom, um, Mm-hmm. is a very interesting example of that i think yeah and and i believe alice sweet alice one of my favorite which is um to me is a full-blown slasher film from 1976 i believe that has the killer's subjective point of view as well well cool. i mean and if you really want to go back far uh m you know yes from 1931 that also is a potential proto slasher in, in that sense and it definitely has that killer pov yeah, and and that movie's creepy because he was a a killer of children. Yeah, and um that yeah. that's actually I, I read in my research. Of course, M comes up in this, and and that's cited as the first instance in cinema where they actually had a light motif where you had music for the monster that you know signals an attack or the kills. That's right. Was the the Hall of the Mountain King? Is that what that was? <laughs> yeah, or? good job, Doc. Yeah, he yeah. whistled that as he was hunting his victims. Right. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh-huh. Something that I've always admired of, from Twisted Nerve that um, Tarantino riffed on a lot as well. I like that idea of a whistling. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and Josh, really, I mean, there was a neat variation of that in The Wire with the character Omar. He'd whistle the farmer and the Dell. And then we oh. get that in things like Jurassic Park 3, where the cell phone ring would signal the Spinosaurus. You know, yep. that's very wow. cool. It's interesting you mentioned that I worked with somebody in uh, in with the uh, scene in Kill Bill, where they have that whistle effect when uh, L drivers walking down the hall with a needle, yeah, on a pan he- heading toward the bride. Um, this person said that they they can't watch that scene. It's the most one of the most disturbing scenes they've ever they've ever witnessed. Hmm. Was was her walking down the hall with that needle, and um, I don't know if it was the whistle. I, I'm I'm sure it had something to do with it. But uh, they they just said, wow, that they, they, it really, really disturbed them. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's from the film Twisted Nerve, 1968. And um, 
Bernard Her- Herman, I believe, uh, was behind the music for that film. So wow, nice. But anyway, um, so that yeah, that's good. I I, I think um, that's interesting. I wondered one of the other questions is what is a slasher then, and how did they differ from the horror that came before? Um, we, we've touched on those things um, with this proto slasher specifically. What changes then are we seeing in these films? Do you guys think um, as uh, the genre is kind of developing? Go ahead, Doc. You want to go first? We're we're seeing more. Uh, you know, I guess we're talking like post Halloween. Yeah, I think Halloween so. I mean, but I, look, I mean, let's even include these proto slashers and and things that because I'm, I'm curious of the tropes of the slasher. How many of those rear their heads in these films as we'll go through them? Well, a lot of in a lot of them. Um, one of the main things I notice is the, uh, uh, well, I don't know as much with the protos, but going forward is the emphasis is really put on the killer as, a, as opposed to the victim. That's interesting. You know, the, 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 we're looking more, you know, with, um, people in, when the slashers came around, one of the things I think that bothered Ebert, Cisco, a lot of the mainstream critics were people were going to the movie to see Jason. Yeah. to see Michael Myers, to see right. them do what they do, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to going to see their ultimate demise or, you know, which never seemed to come. Or the triumph uh, of a final girl, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, and you see that a little bit, not, not, not as much with Psycho, but definitely, I think, Peeping Tom. Yeah, definitely. You see that, and... Um, Maybe the town that dreaded sundown, although not as much. No, I don't think the town that dreaded sundown um, uh, as much. But definitely with Peeping Tom, you you see the focus put squarely on the killer. Well, let's uh, talk about some of these tropes, and then let's apply them as we get to each of these yeah. films individually. So I got a okay. I got a few. So like usually the okay. killer begins as human, which you've already mentioned. Now this is now Josh. I'm I'm having a hard time saying. Okay, these are things that didn't happen in other sorts of horror movies, but here are the tropes. Usually okay. they suffer some sort of personal tragedy or injustice, and so their killer, their killing is usually motivated in some form of revenge. Yeah. And um, there's like, you know, the murders are serialized, like serial killer style. Well, going back to the... Um, Go ahead. Going back to that first thing, mm-hmm. um, there's a tragedy. I think trauma... And particularly psychological trauma um, plays a huge role in these early proto slashers. I'm not sure, you know, that definitely uh, carries over to the early slashers as well. But I think that might have been something that's lost along the way. Um, but it, again, I think psychology and the emergence of psychology in mainstream American culture has a big impact on horror films mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Real life serial killers seem to be a big thing that people were patterning these films on as well. Yeah. Now, and, and not all slashers do this, but, um, you know, often the killer will wear a mask or their identity is obscured or hidden. And so it's actually a mystery film as well. But there are some slasher examples where, you know, right up front who the killer is, like, for example, in um, the toolbox murders. Right. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, straight out blatantly who it is. And then slashers often kill with a weapon. Usually it's some kind of a cutting weapon. Although that's not always the case. I mean, we, we have some people who are pretty um, prolific in their instruments of death. <laughs> you know, right. Going back to that um, mask thing, I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a big one, the masked killer um, in slashers. Not as prevalent in the, in the proto-slashers, although it does definitely exist in the giallos. 
Um, but there always seems to be some kind of costuming. Uh, not always, I guess, but that's a that's a big thing. Even if even if the uh, killer um, isn't obscured, you know, even even if we see the face or know who it is, there still is some kind of uh, some kind of uniform that the killer's wearing, or something that sets the killer apart. Obviously, in jealous, it's often the black gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But there seems to be a definite uniform that goes along with the killing, right? Um, or some kind of costume of some kind. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And actually the one thing that I'm I'm thinking that this is uh that I noticed uh with these four films whether it's out, you know, out in the forefront or sort of an, an underlying theme is uh sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that plays a very big part in in these films that we're going to be discussing tonight and the slashers going forward. If nothing else then, you know that that uh the, the rules from scream don't have sex or you're going to be killed. Yeah. And again, that's, I think that's something that the meaning of that seems to change when we get to the heyday of, of uh, slashers, as we talked about with the human versus the superhuman. Um, I think sex starts out in these movies as being really part of the psychology of the killer. Um, right. You know, and, and again, part of that kind of a psychological trauma um, but then later on in the kind of the heyday of the slasher, it almost becomes this, um, like you said, the um, it's almost like a moral tale or something, which right. is, I don't feel like was present at all. And as I've been reviewing these um, proto slashers, they don't seem like they're as much about that moral tale as much as they are about the trauma of the, of the killer. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely, I agree. And even, and even things like, you know, I, I think it was more, um, happenstance. Like, I don't know that Michael Myers wasn't going to kill if they didn't have sex. Right. You know, I think it was just something that was, that was more just went along. I think even John Carpenter talked about that, that he was not originally looking at Halloween as, as what, like you were saying, a morality tale of, of don't have sex, you know, outside of a marriage. He, he, he said that's something that was sort of, he can see why people put that into it, but that was not his intention going into that movie. Well, and another thing about the, the sex aspect is, in Friday the 13th, the first film, of course, I mean, there is a, that has a strong story-related tie-in. It's actually uh-huh. part of the story and motivation, whereas, um, you know, I guess the cynical part of me really kind of thinks that it became part of the sensationalism where, like, um, it's almost like a base desire of a viewership or an audience where they just kind of come to expect to see naked yeah. people in a slasher film. Right. So I, I do, I like what Josh said. I think that was pretty profound about how it used to be more based in psychology. And I think as we've gone, it's become less and less so. And even I think it's interesting in the difference between um, the sex in Friday the 13th as opposed to something like we're talking about now. Even if, Even in Friday the 13th, it didn't necessarily have to be sex. It just kind of... It was sex, and it plays an important story role, but it didn't necessarily have to be. It could have been uh-huh. smoking dope, or it could have been playing right. video games, you know, in that mm-hmm. film. Right. Whereas um, in some of these films like Torso uh, and Psycho, the sexuality is a big, um, you know, it's and it's very human sexuality in Torso too. So right. I'm interested to talk about that more as we get there. Um, let's let's review a couple more of these things we're talking about. I like that Jason brought up the killing instruments because obviously. That's always, um, and that's something again that's evolved. I think it, you know we all 
look for the creative kills. And I was watching some of these earlier films. I'm I'm thinking, well, this is a really weird choice. And then I'm realizing, oh, like this may have been <laughs> an influence <laughs> on the creative kills down the road. But in this movie, it just seems weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and exactly. uh, that happens a couple of times. We can talk about that as we get to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the instruments um, play a big role. And one thing I read online. Um, <laughs> Funny you said like, instruments. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I read online suggested that a slasher, you know, is something, and it doesn't always have to be a knife. It often is, but, um, but it's at least, it's usually something other than a gun. And that kind of also sets it apart from other kinds of films with killing. Um, it's usually not, you know, it's usually an, it's usually an instrument that's not going to alert others in the area that a murder yeah. is occurring. And it's an instrument that causes a lot of, physical damage it's very gory and just destructive i like that that's interesting Uh um so there's that there's the body count i think that's something we start to see even in some of these films maybe the body counts only one or two or three but you know they're i guess they're always at least two you know they're it's about the bodies um stacking up and and that happens in you know some of these early giallos um as, as well you know, I think again, Bava's films had a huge impact on that. I believe right. um, this idea yep. of the body count, and so yeah, I think that's that's definitely one of the things. The final girl, Jason mentioned. Um, it's it's interesting that that's become a trope because it doesn't seem obvious to me, as opposed to some of these other ones. It doesn't seem like it's an mm-hmm. obvious choice, and I wonder where that idea came, comes from. Hmm. Huh. Any thoughts on that? The earliest, um, the, the earliest example of that that pops into my head is um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I bet there are ones earlier than that, right, Doc? Uh, yeah, let me think here. I mean, uh, more than likely. I mean, in a lot of them, I guess it just comes down to most of the, a lot of the times the, the victims are women. Yeah. So if, if you're going to have, you know, in, in, in the days of the... Uh, uh, what am I, I guess with with uh, you know censorship being what it was, and then the production code and whatnot. Um, not so much production code. I guess we're looking a little later than that. But if if the victims, if the people that the killer's going after are going to be women, then the one who's going to ultimately, I guess, come out on top is going to be a woman, especially in the days where you couldn't have the killer win out in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it might have just been something along those lines, yeah. but. It, it, I think it's just mostly because women are, are a lot of times the central, they're the victims. They're the ones that the killer is, is sort of honing in on. And I think the reason for that, I mean, part of the reason is perhaps we saw them as the, forgive me for this, the weaker sex, quote unquote, and, and they're helpless or whatever. And I, and I think it was, um, you know, we felt this real apprehension because we thought of our daughters or sisters or girlfriends or wives in that scenario when we would watch those films but then right. but then the concept of the final girl i think got popular because you have a, an example of strong feminism you know shining through yeah, yeah i'd definitely. agree with that i'd agree with that josh what about the community uh, the the targets the victims they seem to be the younger crowd it's always like early college age or teenagers often Rather yep. than a slasher where you kill a bunch of old people in old folks' home. Well, yeah, as with the Roger Ebert, the Roger Ebert quote from earlier, "Dead teenager movies." I think that's that's quite apt. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that's definitely an interesting aspect that they're they're young, and again, I think it's interesting that we see them become unlikable. To me, that's a that kind of plays into what Doc was talking about about this um, idea that we're going to root for the killer rather than the mm-hmm. than the victims. And that became a part. I mean, even in um, I'm just trying to think of all those sort of early slasher films. That's that's the way it was in something like uh, you know, Happy Birthday to Me. Uh, I just didn't. I remember watching that, and I didn't like the characters. You, you know, you don't. It's not important in these films that you like the characters that they're giving you. You know that that it's, right. it's just it's it's almost as if they're saying, "Don't worry, they're going to get their just desserts." Right. <laughs> the strongest example of that I've ever seen to this day is Gutter Balls. Because you despise those characters. And, and there's not just one that you hate and you want him to get it. I mean, you basically want everybody to die. <laughs> That's funny. Look out. Look out. Look out. Take care. You are being watched. We repeat. Take care. For you are now alone with a killer. We warn you. Don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks. And this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? Look out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. <laughs> it's no good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine. Someone coming towards you who wants to kill you, regardless of consequences. A madman? Yes. Wait! There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victim. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. Okay, so our first film we'll talk about tonight is Peeping Tom. Uh, This is a 1960 uh, film, and it's directed by Michael Powell, who's just one of the great all-time British filmmakers. Um, The Red Shoes is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies, not a horror movie by any stretch of the imagination. No. Although the, with the dancing scenes that come up in Peeping Tom, I did <laughs> think about <laughs> Red Shoes. Um, so this, you know, precedes Psycho in terms of release. And uh, Hitchcock was aware of this movie um, as he was preparing to release Psycho. I'm not sure that it played an influence in the production of Psycho. Maybe you guys uh, have more information about that than I do. Well, you know, it was only released like a, within like a few months earlier, right? They were still both 1960. Correct? They, they were sort of in. I don't know that one could have influenced the other, right? Because I, they were in production at the same time. I do know that the release, uh, though, influenced the way Hitchcock chose to release Psycho. We can talk about that okay. a little bit later, but okay. But yeah, so this is a 1960 uh, British film, and. It's interesting, um, as I even read on IMDb, the description of the film, it basically spoils uh, from the beginning what, what we're dealing with here. Um, and you know, we're going to have to get into some spoilers for a lot of these movies. I, I'm going to attempt to go spoiler-free unless it really matters to the discussion, like I think it will in Psycho, for instance. 
Um, but how do you guys how do you guys explain this movie? Would do you, is it even worth talking about without trying without talking about the spoilers? I I actually love the IMDb premise, and I personally think that just if people would read that ahead of time, they would just have a better um, orientation with the film, and I think maybe it would they would enjoy it like easier. And, and, and this <laughs> isn't this isn't one that that conceals the killer. I mean, you do learn not a lot. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have. I mean, it, it's you know pretty soon, but I do think it's not. It's not like a whodunit type of thing, but right, right. it's also not totally blatant on screen for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I would say, right. As far as the actually, you never see, see you it. never see yeah. the killer killing. Um, right. Kill mm-hmm. That's film. that's true. And and what about? So are you, Josh? Are you kind of hesitant to give? his motivation for the kill, like the latter half of the IMDb premise. Um, I was wondering how to talk about it, but if we, I mean, if we think, I think for this film particularly, it's very difficult to discuss without spoilers. And so I think it would be a bit of a disservice to the audience not to discuss it. If you don't want to hear um, spoilers for peeping Tom, uh, skip ahead and come back right. and listen to this later. But I think, yeah, let's definitely do spoilers for this one. As I think about it. And Jason, do you want to talk about the IMDb premise and then we'll, Go from there. Yes, it reads, A young man murders women using a movie camera to film their dying expressions of terror. Now, and and, and I guess the reason I felt like that was useful, and, and I, by the way, I didn't read that. And, you know, before, the first time I saw the film, I went in kind of blind, basically is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I was kind of lost because it's a little bit hard to tell what's going on because you you get the sense that he's harming them with the camera but you're not sure exactly how or why you don't really get his motivation um but then after reading that you're like oh okay he's using the movie camera and it shows the weapon that he has stashed inside like in one of the legs he has a blade that he uses yeah and and then you learn in the film too that he wants to capture fear on their face he wants to film their fear as he Let's leave that them. last little tiny spoiler at the end for people who haven't seen it that are listening. Because I know a lot of people haven't seen it, but they're still listening. You know which one oh, I'm talking you about? Mean, you mean the very end? The very, very end. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Jason, that describes it well. And I think one of the first things I noticed, so the movie starts out with this POV shot um, through the killer's camera. And I, I kind of immediately I was thinking of M as it started, and I thought that was kind of interesting. But my second thought is this is kind of like early found footage stuff. And, and, and the, first, the reason it first occurred to me is that they made one of those same goofy mistakes that a lot of found footage movies do, which is filming things you wouldn't actually film in real life. Uh, there's a shot following a prostitute down an alleyway, and then he stops to throw away um, – a package of film into a garbage can. And it's just so funny because it's so staged. It like focuses on the garbage can. You see the hand come in, throw it in the way, <laughs> it stays on it for a few seconds. Like uh-huh. in real life, there's no way he's looking down at the garbage can for that long, you know, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's the difficulty you get into when you're fi- filming something from a, a POV that you're not mimicking what a person would actually do. And I think that is something that Carpenter did better than people that came before him, actually. I mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the two things you said I really liked. Um, well, I like that you said it pretty much. It just opens right away with a kill, which, by the way, is a slasher convention. Many yeah. slasher films open with a kill to get it rolling. Yeah. So you have the sense of danger right up front. And then the subjective point of view of the killer is significant in this film. But um, one last thing, and then I'll shut up for a second. But this is obvious probably to most people, but I love how when you're looking through the camera from his point of view, there are crosshairs. And I love how that's equated with a rifle's crosshairs of his target. Right, almost, uh, the target, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. And there's even a, a, um, uh, immediately following that scene, um, he's there's a camera back on the street, the same type of camera. And as we, you know, again, I don't want to get too deep into spoilers, but I guess we already are. Is it, we find out the exact same camera, not only having having not only filmed the kill, is now filming the aftermath. Yeah, the police coming to the scene and and finding the body and the crowd gathering around the. Um, the the uh, the location and it's uh, it's interesting. I was looking up that that location that 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 what is it? Uh, I think it's called um, uh, Nathan's Pad Norman's Pad. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Norman's Passage, that little tunnel uh, where they find that body. Um, I had, there's a very similar one to that in in a town of Stamford in England called St Mary's Passage. That's that same type of tunnel, and it just is. Gives you an uneasy feeling. It gave me an uneasy feeling walking down that and looking at that. It it just sort of is reminiscent of almost something like you'd see in a in a like a Jack the Ripper type of movie, you know, mm-hmm. just that darkened um, area. Oh, um, yeah. uh, that that tunnel and it just it, that right away and maybe because I I was familiar with one in in an, uh, in another town, but it just just sort of gave me that gave me the chills um you know where they where they were taking this body out and interestingly enough he shot this on location i think i found that it uh, the the murder itself took took place above uh, a pub that for hundreds of years has been a pub i think it said that uh dylan thomas and george orwell used to frequent that pub mm. um you know where they where they shot that just a little bit of trivia you know there but um that that more than anything, it's just kind of like wow. And I even was trying to look up to see because there's there's a reference made to it. There's um, on the uh, Criterion release, and I have the DVD. I'm not sure if this was put out on Blu-ray or not. I think it might have been, but I have the DVD, and there's a um, uh, commentary track with the uh, with the scholar. I, I can't remember what her name is, talking about the movie where she even makes a Jack the Ripper sort of reference. Uh, at that scene where they're taking the body out. And I, I wanted to look and see if that was one of the locations where Jack the Ripper had struck. And it, it doesn't look like it was. Or at least I can't find any information saying that it was. But it definitely gives you that vibe. I just, sorry, I wanted to jump back to something you said a couple minutes ago, Doc. I love that you pointed out that he wanted to return and and film, you know, the aftermath and the investigation. And that's actually something that is fairly common i guess <laughs> with serial killers a lot of times they will return to the scene of the crime to like look at the scene and watch mm-hmm. all the aftermath interesting yeah, yeah and, and and something kind of before we even get to that scene that i thought was an interesting filmmaking choice is it replays the kill so it starts with the shot um, of the initial kill mm-hmm. and then for the opening credit sequence it goes back to him watching his film 
like watching what he just shot. Right. And that it, becomes it, our opening credit sequence is a replay of the exact stuff we just saw, but he's in the frame watching it. And I thought that was really effective and extremely creepy. And I'm sure it, that for the time was super creepy. Absolutely. And, and it, it's interesting because it goes from this very dramatic event where you hear the screaming, you hear this woman's, you know, like, like screams and as, as she's about to be killed to the very impersonal, rather cold presentation on film. It's silent. It's in black and white. We're watching it all play out again, but we're not getting that same chill because we're not hearing it. And it, it's just, it's like impersonal now. It's not, okay, now somebody's watching it. They're not committing a murder. They're watching it. And I thought that was sort of an interesting way to, to introduce the whole film, you know, the, the, the uh, introduce filmmaking into it. You know, how, how it, how, when you watch it back, it can make it sort of cold and impersonal. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and that he is, as a character, kind of weird and cold and impersonal as well. That's I mean, true. he's <laughs> yeah. a very disturbed character. So it um, sort of fits, it fits his personality. Which, by the way, this character is played by Carl Bohm, um, who is a German-Austrian actor. His, you know, uh, dual citizenship and his dad's an Austrian his mom's a German, and his parents were these really famous people. His dad was a conductor, um, and his mom was a, a soprano, um, and they both performed professionally, and he had this really intense growing up, and that's actually why he was cast in the role, um, because Michael Powell thought that he would be able to relate to that feeling of having these kind of emotionally overbearing parents um, and that he, that might be a, <laughs> a a good back or a good uh, backstory for him to kind of be able to work from. I bet they were which I thought was interesting. And he did play it well. I mean, I do have to give him credit. Um, as weird, I think because because first I'll say I think it is a weird film, and yeah. it's a very um, it's a very what, what's the word for his performance? How would you describe his performance? It's um. <sighs> It's very Almost. emotional. Like I, in some ways, I can relate it to to Psycho in a way. It's very um, bare. I mm-hmm. feel like it's it's put. It's a little more put on. I wouldn't say it's as um, as on the money as uh, Anthony Perkins in Psycho. Um, it's a, but he, but there's a lot of emotion behind it, and it's very vulnerable. I guess is that's the that's that's I think the perfect explanation. Yeah, it, it's very vulnerable. You see that even when he's. When the neighbor comes out uh, to introduce herself and just say hi, you know, yeah. you, you, you sense that he just has no sort of um, experience with, with that type of interaction, <laughs> has no idea how to react or what to say, uh, you know, and he even all he sort of mutters at the end is, is sort of a half-hearted happy birthday, mm-hmm. you know, when she's inviting him into the party as he, as he sort of rushes upstairs to, to escape the situation. Yeah, yeah, totally. What, what do you guys think about the choice to make him um, in the film? He is a film professional, so he works um, at a movie studio as his professional job. Is that just so he can have access to this camera? Is it was it because of the, the technology at the time? A camera like this would be unattainable to the average person, or do you think that's just a stylistic I, choice? I think it speaks to you know what we find out is his. Um, what has ultimately scarred him yeah. uh, is the motion picture camera that 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 he now can't really escape its draw. That pretty much every aspect of his life, from the extra money he earns 
to, um, you know, his, I guess his, uh, what am I trying to say? Like his psychosis all centers on the movie camera. And we find out why, as we learn a little bit more about his, about his backstory, how it was part of his life in in a very unhealthy way. Mm. And that now it's almost like he just can't, he can't really relate to the world unless he's looking through the viewfinder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with what you both said. And Josh, I think it's all the above of what you said. And just the fact that it makes sense in, in the story that this guy who's obsessed with filming things would do it for money. Right. Um, so uh, any other moments of the film we want to discuss before kind of moving on to its reception and, and release and things like that? Well, uh, yeah, just one thing I want to say is um, I really think this is kind of a special film. <laughs> and I mean, I mean that, I mean that sincerely. I think there's something really unique and, um, bizarre it's strange it's weird it's it's unsettling but i'll tell the horror fans out there if they've never seen it you know it has i mean a lot of these things we're going to be well some of these things we're going to be talking about tonight don't have your traditional horror movie feel but i think that this is um it gets really creepy on a very um i guess disturbing level but you know and you and you're probably getting into this with reception, but which Josh will talk about, I'm sure. But I just wanted to say, like, I think the film was well made too, because, for example, they do really fanciful things. Like, there's a match cut. This is very insignificant, but like, they go from a scene to one person pouring a drink. They start pouring the drink in one scene, and then it cuts, and it and it cuts to another scene where in the same place on the frame, someone else is pouring a drink and they stop pouring the drink. So you got that 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 action cut in half between the two scenes and it's a beautiful transition into the next uh-huh. scene. And I'm like, man, you know, I'm sure I mean, people look down their nose at this film, some creepo film, but it's like, this is actually art and I can see that in the film today. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. I, I agree too. And something I thought was really interesting is I mean, I haven't seen many of uh, Michael Powell's films, but the ones I have seen, I did see Red Shoes. And actually, my favorite is uh, Black Narcissus. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, but when you look at Peeping Tom, it's a very different type of film from anything he had done before, yet it still has that look of being a Michael Powell film. I guess going back to sort of the whole auteur uh, philosophy that you can you can tell by even that opening shot of that street there's an artificiality to it and yet it seems vibrant and you yeah. get a lot of that in Michael Powell's uh, uh when he was with Pressburger a lot of his movies mm-hmm. you get that especially black narcissus where where there's it doesn't look real but yet it pops there's something alive about it and i think that that very opening frame the, the way that shot is framed on that street you get that same feel where you can look at it and say, yes, this is a, a Michael Powell film. Nice. I like that. And one other thing I'd just like to let the listeners know in case this will be their first time checking it out. Um, even though it's called Peeping Tom, I mean, the title makes sense. <laughs> His character name in it is not Tom, by the way, just so right. people <laughs> right. People know. His character name is Mark Lewis. But um, I just want to say that it's not really... 
in some ways it's about a voyeur, but it's not this pervert looking in these girls' windows and they're naked or anything. I just want There's, people to know that. Right. The whole thing, the whole peeping Tom thing is, again, I think through the viewfinder. There is one scene right. where he's kind of looking in a window, um, but not really in a uh, – uh, at least he, he wasn't – it wasn't intending intended to be a creepy – uh, sort of thing. Although you do see in the flashback him um, watching uh, in a, a scene of somebody watching something in a park mm-hmm. that maybe they shouldn't have been quite so focused on. Um, <laughs> almost like they were being, also almost like they were being forced to do so. You know, to to gauge reaction mm-hmm. um, by the person who was who had the camera on them. Um, so there's that, but I think most of that peeping Tom thing is just sort of through the viewfinder. I mean, he's looking at everything and he's seeing, right. Seeing and we things are, that because, and because we are too. Him. Right. We right. become exactly. warriors uh, by taking on his kind of, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Point of view there. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the reception. Cause I find it interesting that this movie was destroyed by critics when it came out. Yeah. Um, I think it's even funnier that now it's considered a classic. So you have a film that just, had a horrible reception. Um, and now just as I look at Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I think that's a really funny kind of juxtaposition right there. Um, it was said, and I don't know how true it is. Um, there are varying reports, but it was said that this actually ruined Michael Powell's career. Right. Um, that this was a film that really, um, halted his career. Now he did work after that, but, um, it, it clearly had a huge, effect on it and um the film was really um the film was really boycotted in a lot of places and and that um happening actually as i said influenced hitchcock um to not have any press screenings before his movie was released which turned out to be um even a bigger boon to the release of his film kind of having Brilliant. to be this big event that nobody knew about but right. really the the um reasoning behind that wasn't what it turned into, which was this cool, exclusive, see it now, you can't come in after the credits kind of big event as it was trying to avoid having the film shut down by by critics and censors <laughs> before anyone saw it. And, and Interesting. He, and he noted Peeping Tom um, and the reception of that film as the reason that he approached it that way. Very so, interesting. I, I, I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. It is cool. Great facts, Josh. Yeah. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. I, I also um, saw that it, this film had a big kind of cult revival in 1970, um, and people when people started watching it again, um, and uh, Martin Scorsese was among one of its early admirers, and he actually paid five thousand dollars for a U.S. distribution of the film so that more people could see it. Um, Michael Powell, being one of Scorsese's favorite directors, uh, but there's a great uh, quote here from Martin Scorsese that I'd like to read really quick. Awesome. Um, he's a big fan of Powell's work and of Fellini. And um, what he says here is great. And it, and it maybe plays into what we were talking about, about um, our main character here being a filmmaker. But he says, I have always felt that Peeping Tom and Eight and a Half, being Fellini's Eight and a Half, see everything that can be said about filmmaking, about the process of dealing with film the objectivity and subjectivity of it, and the confusion between the two. Eight and a Half captures the glamour and enjoyment of filmmaking, while Peeping Tom shows the aggression of it, 
how the camera violates. From studying them, you can discover everything about people who make films, or at least people who express themselves through films. I thought that was pretty crazy. That's, that's great, yeah. That's that, awesome. That makes me really leary of you, Josh, as a filmmaker. <laughs> I don't know. More leery of uh, Scorsese, but yeah. Right. right. I, mean, I think late, later in life, uh, Michael Powell was actually married to uh, Thelma Schumacher, um, uh, you know, Scorsese's longtime editor. And I'm guessing, I don't know, I'm guessing they might have met through Scorsese. Because I read somewhere that she actually now owns the rights to the movie and, and any possible remake. Oh, you know, I guess through her through her marriage to uh, to Michael Powell. It's interesting. Many of the things that you know, those tropes that we identified can be found in this film. We've got the the sexual aggression. We've got the semi nude female characters. Mm-hmm. We've got the body count. Um, even more than Psycho, we've got. Um, more of a body count in this this the first one. We've got that opening kill scene as we as we talked about. We've got the final girl. Subjective point of view, a killing implement, a sharp killing implement. Yeah, absolutely. And um and creative kill, you know, is is definitely a thing. Oh yes. So so Josh, what about I mean this film was also because of its um reception, it was like heavily butchered and cut and everything. And I read in the trivia that even though the cuts were, some of the cuts were restored later in video and DVD releases, that some of the edit, edited footage that they chopped is considered lost forever. I mean, is that, have you heard, like as far as the Criterion Collection, which I know this is in the Criterion Collection now, does anybody know it, how much of it they were able to restore? I, I don't know. I watched the Criterion yeah. Collection, but I didn't see any of the features, so I didn't hear about um, whether that had been restored or not. I, I hadn't. I didn't hear about. I, I didn't realize there was a whole lot um, uh, cut out of it. To be honest with you, I'm guessing there probably was. Hopefully, James Franco will remake uh, those <laughs> lost portions of the film. And nice. Yeah, there you go. See those someday. <laughs> Good. And reference. you know, I got I, I, something else, and I'm sure that he probably caught heat for this, but there's even a scene in in the movie that. Even aside from the main character, there's there's just this sort of <sighs> creepy, ominous sort of scene where um, he works. Uh, the, the lead character works for a, um, I guess, a pharmacist who sells, um, you know, nude pictures and these sort of racy sort of movies on the side, right. you know, to people who come in and ask for them. And the guy who walks in, this is an old time comedian. I know I've seen him in in a lot of British comedies. Uh, like he was in Kind Hearts and Coronets and so forth, that comes walking in and and to buy a paper and then sort of sort of you know hints around. I understand you have some um, you know some what does he say images? I'm not sure what it is. You know, saying hey, you have some nude photos I could possibly buy. I think he says some views. Actually. Views. That's yeah. you're you're exactly right. He says views, and um, as he's looking through this, a young girl comes walking in to buy a candy bar. <laughs> just out of the blue walks in to buy a candy bar he walks off to the side <laughs> and it's there's something about having that in there you know having this little girl this innocent little scene walking into a place where where this um for 1960 very sort of immoral shocking transaction is about to take place i love that scene you know and, and the fact that michael powell threw something like that in there i'm sure that might have brought some heat on him as well yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah I, and the scene that follows that also is kind of surprising um, in terms of, you know, we know that uh, our main character is a filmmaker, but he also has this other side job that is maybe unsavory. 
And it's interesting that it doesn't seem to line up with, on one hand, he's a killer, right? But, but on uh-huh. the other hand, his character seems very naive and childlike. And then a lot of that's due to his backstory. But right. it's weird because almost his second job doesn't seem like something he would be involved with almost. Other That's, than the fact yep. that he's a psychosexual killer, but <laughs> right. <laughs> Other than and that, then, and then they even have a, a reveal during that scene that that kind of is jarring for the audience and jarring for the main character as well with the other girl. Yes, you know, and where where you you just sort of see her and you you don't really think anything of it in silhouette, and then finally there's a turn to the camera and you realize something. You're like, oh wow, yeah. And 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 the main character has the same sort of reaction that the audience does. Yeah. Although his his um you know his reaction is 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 much more more personal I guess and then <laughs> a little more intense yeah um, he gets than, excited than the audiences <laughs> but it's just kind of interesting how that whole thing was set up where you're not thinking anything of it and then all of a sudden there's this reveal mm-hmm. yeah now I I would say the only the only thing about this I mean I would I would definitely call this a a proto slasher. But I mean, it's it's almost full blown slasher. I think there's a fine line in some of these examples, and like this one, the only thing of the major slasher conventions, the only thing it doesn't have is really graphically depicted murders. I mean, there's a little gore, but it's not super graphic. And uh-huh. and honestly, I mean, why do you guys? I mean, do you guys think this is a a full-blown slasher or not quite? And if so, why is it not quite full-blown? Well, I just think it, I mean, I don't know what float full-blown means, I guess I wouldn't. Well, would you call it a slasher or a proto slasher is what I'm asking? Well, I call it a proto slasher because it's the first, essentially it's the first and it precedes the slasher as a genre of film. It's, as you said, it's a very unique film and it was especially unique at that time because nothing like it had really been made before it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it could be proto too, because we do, you know, where I said that the focus is on the killer, um, you know, when the slashers were in, you know, were in in their heyday, the focus is on the killer. But this is, in this instance, we learn a whole lot about the killer. You know, you don't always get that backstory later on. Uh, You get somewhat of a backstory, like, okay, with Jason, you know, we learned that he, he almost drowned and. Um, but, uh, not a whole lot aside from that. Whereas this one, you know, this is a character we're getting to know We're we're getting to know a whole lot about this character. Yeah. And I think that's something that's not there later on. So I think that sort of puts it in the, in the proto slasher as well. We're deep in his psychology. We know, we know that it's him. He's not hiding himself as much as we would see in the, in the future. Um, there's right. no mask, you know? Right. There's there's not that eerie sort of we don't know anything about this person, so we're not fully capable of what they can do. Uh, sort of fear or paranoia that went along uh, later on with Michael Myers and um, you know uh, Jason and so forth. Doctor Shock. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry. This is random, but you said something a minute ago that kind of um, perked up my ears. Why did Why did you say that um, Jason almost drowned? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm saying that because you're being uh, careful. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, well, being careful <laughs> in a way, but um, just you know, curious. He, yeah, because I don't know because of the fact that he was walking around. I guess something is something about that just had me believe maybe he didn't <laughs> <laughs> didn't fully drown. Mm. Um, 
Wow, <laughs> there's an age-old debate right there that could come yeah, up. Anyway, I, guess, I won't. I sorry, to, sorry to derail. Josh. I guess that that, that whether you no, whether you, do you figure that Jason is is human or is he? Well, I'm not going to say zombie. That's that that would open up a whole new can of worms if we refer to Jason Ooh. as a zombie. I, I just believe that what his mother says at the end of the film is what happened. But I that's all I thought. I assumed everybody felt that way, but I guess not. No, it, uh, you know, I mean, well, because I'm not looking, you don't see it as one film there. I mean, after the first film, I might have felt that way, but it, it's a series now. And, right, right. Um, you know, and, and Jason is is part of, uh, he's, he appears lives. in every film. Yeah, exactly. Jason <laughs> lives. So, um, okay. You know, you know here's, here's something interesting. And as you talk about sequels, I think, you know, Peeping Tom doesn't inspire a bunch of sequels. Or as right. even our next film we're going to talk about released the same year, Psycho, has a bunch of you know these kind of cash grab sequels mm-hmm. um, featuring yeah, that, our same monster, and so that's another thing that kind of differentiates it. And it had the same, but it's funny because you didn't get the first sequel till well into the the uh, slasher craze. Yeah, you know there was no thought of doing one until the slasher sort of came back, and then they said, "Hey, you know we can still make some money off of this guy." Uh, or from Norman Bates, so let's uh, let's try. You know, let's let's bring him out again. <laughs> yes, interesting, and 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 it is also interesting how much we're sympathizing with the killer. Um, talk about rooting for a killer. It's not in the sense of some of these movies where we're rooting for him because we want to see him kill a bunch of people, but in this one, you're really invested in what he's gone through in his life, kind of, and you feel really sorry for him. Uh-huh. And ends in this tragic way, whereas I think a lot of uh, slashers are kind of meant to make you feel like, okay, we killed the monster, hooray. The way this ends, even though it has the final girl and the and the monsters killed, it, it's kill. He's killed in a very tragic, sympathetic, yes, <laughs> kind, yeah, of situ- kind of way. In his Absolutely. last line. Even though it's all it's sad, it's also kind of hilarious. It's not meant to be funny, but like it cracks me up. The very last thing he says is just so funny to me. <laughs> but I'm a sicko, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I think that's that's great. Do we want to do ratings for this one, and then we'll move on to yeah. uh, the next? Okay, yeah, cool. absolutely. So, um, let's see. I don't. I can't get a sense of who likes this most. I'm trying to. De- I'm trying to decide here. Why don't you go first, Jason, and we'll, we'll round Robin. Okay. Yeah, so for me, Peeping Tom from 1960, if you're a horror fan, this is a uh, must-see rental. I give it a 6 out of 10. I really enjoy the film. I, I do think it's special when I say that. But again, I, I guess I just want to reiterate that it's, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel or seem like a modern horror film because it's <laughs> like what? What what is it? 40, 50 years old. Uh-huh. I'm terrible at math. But but anyway, so I, I just want people to be aware of that. That's why I think it's a rental. I think I think a lot of people out there would probably see it and like it and want to buy it and put it in their collection. But for me it's a rental. I say six. Very good. What about you? What about you, Doc? Uh, I'm gonna actually give it an eight. Uh, I thought I think it's one that I I, I think you should own it if if nothing else it's it's showing you uh giving you an idea of where the slasher originated um you know so putting into place some of the uh you know f- some of the more familiar um aspects of of the slasher with the with the point of view um the focus on the killer and i think it's a very well made 
uh, movie, and, and it definitely uh, you know gets the tension up and and um, keeps keeps you um, keeps you interested in the story from start to finish. So for me, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it in uh, give it an eight. The only thing that always sort of bothers me is the size of the weapon. Yeah. On on you know that 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 he's using, um, <laughs> it just seemed a little too big. Yeah. You know to to be fully um, sort of saying okay yeah that's a, that's believable. Um, it always just kind of said in my mouth I was like come on I mean you know but. It's very minor, and it's and and that even that sort of goes away as the movie uh, as the movie goes on. So I'm yeah, giving the, it the uh, in the um, Platinum Dunes remake. It can be a GoPro on a machete or something, <laughs> right? Well, it's not the size of the weapon, Doc. It's how you use it. Uh, I guess that's true. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, for me, it's an eight out of ten. Is that that's a buy? Great. Oh yeah, I'm gonna say it's a buy. Okay, I think I'm splitting the difference between you guys. For me. Um, on one hand, it's a—I think it's a classic film. As Doc said, it's very notable as the as one of the beginnings of the slasher genre. Um, I think slasher fans, though, may not appreciate it unless they're also cinephiles, and I think that's why I hesitate a little bit because I think um, it doesn't as as much as it embodies all those characteristics we talked about and was clearly an influence. It doesn't have the tone of a slasher movie. It's very much a psychological film, and I think that's weird for something that features all of these on-screen kills and one of the first movies to feature all these on-screen kills, um, that it also tends to be more psychological. And that, I find that an interesting contradiction right. Uh, right. in this film, kind of a weird inherent contradiction of this film. But mm-hmm. that's tonal stuff. Um, I like it, and, um, and I'm going to give it a seven, and I'm, I'm going to agree with – uh, Jason, that for horror fans, I think it's a rental. Although I would say for cinephiles, it's a it's a buy. Yep. For collectors out there who want who need to have this kind of stuff in their collection, I like what you said, Josh. Because in that way, since it is such a psychological film, it reminds me a lot of Maniac in some ways. Because that's a pretty psychological slasher. Yeah, and then it feels like it, and it feels a little Hitchcockian. Oh, and yeah. I can and I can imagine someone like Peter Lorre taking the lead role in this movie, you know, Oof. and and actually, um, I read something online that it was it was actually had some influences from Hitchcock's Vertigo, um, uh-huh. and that you can see some of those, I guess, apparently if you compare the scenes, which I didn't have time to do, but I found I found that quite interesting as well. That nice. is interesting. So yeah, so that's Peeping Tom. So let's go ahead and move on to our next pick, which is going to be. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. Is anything wrong? Am I acting as if there's something wrong? She's not missing so much as she's run away. Put me down. What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. Who wants to give a shot at introducing this film. Well, could I just say, at least say a prep, a preface 
Yeah. And then and then after having said that preface, maybe Doc can do the the premise. Is that fair? Right. Yeah, that's fine with me. This is my little PSA for um horror fans out there. Now, probably everybody out there listening to this podcast, knowing our audience, they've probably seen this and own it. They've probably seen it ten times at least. This is Psycho from nineteen sixty. But if you're younger and you have not seen Psycho, please do not listen to this review. Like if you know nothing about Psycho and you're in a lucky position that you're in you're a blank slate on this film, please go watch it. You will be glad that you did. And that's yeah. that's really all I wanted to say, Doc, as just a little preface. That, that's fine. I said the exact same thing in my write up of it on on the blog. I said if you're if you're lucky enough to have to know nothing about this movie stop everything you're doing right now don't even look any don't look it up anywhere further just <laughs> just yeah. go out get it watch it right because you you are in a position that really only the very first group of people who saw it in the in the theater were in yeah and Not only you know that, at, but Call your friend who loves the movie and let them come watch you watch it. Yeah, because that this is an, even this is an incredible yeah. moment for their for them. As well. Absolutely. Oh, that Absolutely. is that is great. So yeah, we're saying this, listeners, because we are about to spoil Psycho, you know, through and through, and we there's don't no want... way to talk about it without doing that. Exactly. You know, at least at least some portions of it, and probably all of it. Mm-hmm. Before you turn this off, though, because you really should, if you haven't mm-hmm. seen the movie, the one thing I will say is. If it starts off a little slow, give it some time <laughs> because I do think there, the first 30 minutes or so might be something to, or maybe not that long. Well, the first 15 minutes might be something to overcome for some viewers, but it gets incredible. Yeah, it takes 27 and, minutes to arrive at the Bates Motel. OK, uh-huh. so yeah, first 27 minutes is going to be you're going to have to be patient, but it's absolutely worth the wait. Mm-hmm. All right, Doc, why don't you? Okay, I'm actually just going to go verbatim here. What I have uh, is my nice. um, synopsis on the blog. Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, works as an assistant at a Phoenix-based real estate office. When her boss gives her 40000 in cash to deposit into the bank, Marion instead runs off with the money, hoping it'll be enough to start a new life with her lover, Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin. Later that night, exhausted from hours of driving, Marion decides to spend the night at the Bates Motel, a small, out-of-the-way lodging owned and operated by the strange but friendly Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins, who, along with his mother, lives in the old house out back. And that's where I stopped, because I said pretty much the same thing as Jason. I, I, like I said... Um, anyone who's seen Psycho knows I'm leaving a lot out, and I am. <laughs> um, but it's really for I did that for anybody. You know, I, I it's it's been like Jason said, it's been 50 years since this movie came out. It's very possible that there are teenagers, you know, who may be stumbling on this podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just out there looking for horror movies who have never heard a single thing about Psycho and. And probably dismissed it because it's in black and white. Right. There's probably even college kids, guys, in this day and age that have oh, yeah, never you're heard right. of Psycho. You're, pro- you're, you're right. Now, I, I watched this. There were um, – in the college course I had when we were – you know, a film course, uh, it was sort of a – it wasn't a, a, an intensive film course. It was more of a media course. But we did watch three movies. Um, the, one of them was Psycho, you know, that, that we watched just from a, a filmmaking standpoint. 
um, you know, to, to, as to how it was put together and, and whatnot. And that was one of the, you know, it's, it's that influential. I mean, even for, even from a filmmaking standpoint, it's that influential. I mean, forget what it was doing with its story and the innovations it had there. You know, it's, it's what Hitchcock did with this. And he actually made this with his television crew from his, from his show, from the Alfred Hitchcock presents, mm-hmm. um, you know, because he had to put up a lot of the money himself. You know, the, the, the recent film Hitchcock with uh, Anthony, Anthony uh, Hopkins, yeah. um, you know, starring in it is about the making of Psycho. And it goes into that, how Hitchcock was laying everything he had on the line to make this movie and the battles he had with the censors who were not going to allow this. One of the biggest problems they had was the movie showed a toilet flushing. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the bigger problems the censors had with it was that it showed a toilet flushing. Heavens no. It, this, this is the first movie ever to show that. Wow. That's so funny. And that's why it's great. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, and they had to prove that it was important to the plot, right? That was... Uh... Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hitchcock had to had to had to, you know, go through that. And it was uh um if you get a chance, definitely watch Hitchcock. You know, it's it's interesting because even the the way that that movie's put together, um, you know, Hitchcock sort of narrates it's like the old trailers he did. You know, the the, the trailers that he would do for his later films, including Psycho, usually ran for like four or five minutes long and were <laughs> Hitchcock just talking to the audience, you know, sort of um talking about the movie not even so much showing clips maybe they showed a little bit at the end the majority i remember the one for the birds he's sitting in an office with like these birds in a cage and stuffed birds all around and he's he's someone brings him in like a little a little turkey dinner um you know all these things about about birds and and he himself was as much he himself was more of a celebrity at times than the people who were in his movies (laughs) you know and and that 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 was a level he got to very few directors, I guess, really reached that level. I mean, cinephiles will always know the names of directors, but it's not so often that the, just the, the sort of casual movie fan right. will know, will know who a director is. And I think Hitchcock, um, was one of the ones that they did know that that by sight, the TV show helped, but I don't even, I think it went be even before that, before he had the TV show, I think he was, you know, well-known. And, and I don't think it had anything to do with his cameos either, which, you know, he started to put toward in the first five minutes of the movie because he noticed after doing that, that audiences would sit there waiting to see him. And he says, okay, I got to put it in the first few minutes. Otherwise people are going to lose. And, you know, they're going to be out of the movie waiting for me to pop up all of a sudden. <laughs> That's very funny. But, yeah. The, um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the toilet. Which is you know, which is a funny thing, but really, um, this was actually pushing the boundaries of other, of both the kind of the sex and the violence at that time as well. Just the opening mm-hmm. scene, just the fact that it shows um, Marion and and uh, Sam in bed together, mm-hmm. um, that was a big deal at the time. Yeah. This unmarried couple in bed, you know, even though she's wearing a bra, you know, it was still. Mm-hmm. A, was still a boundary pushing moment and the violence that would come later. Uh, the shower scene in particular was something he was very careful about the way he shot and had to, you know, go through the ringer in terms of the way it was edited as well. Wow. I think I've read somewhere that there are um, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of 75 cuts in that shower sequence. 
Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy actually when you look at it and you think about the technology they were using at the time and how, you know, how he had to line mm-hmm. those shots up and how mm-hmm. careful he had to be. And really again, what a boundary he was pushing. Um I like, you know, and they, you know, we talk about this just in terms of story. He's he's taking you and putting this kill, this scare into the, one of the most vulnerable places you can imagine. And like we mentioned yes. when we talked about Jaws yeah. on our 4th of July episode, I think the shower is still a place where people feel unsafe because of this movie. Because, because of, this. of this movie, right. They, oh. There's always that sort of, is there anybody walking in here? Forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, that's the way it's going to be. Now, just real quick, I'm just going to throw this out there real quick. And looking at it more ob- objectively, if you, if possible, you know, not taking yeah. it, taking out of the, Taking out of the, you know, your, your favorite horror movies, the shower scene in Psycho, do you think it's the most famous death scene in cinema, the, the most famous um, death scene, maybe not even just in horror films, um, maybe extending out to cinema in general? I think that's definitely arguable. It'd take me, it'd take me a little while to check you on that, but I think it's it's got to be in the top three, top five yeah, and and it's, it very well could be the number one off the top of my head. I believe it is probably the most famous. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. And how many times it's been kind of copied in a ridiculous fashion as well. Either as, um, and maybe this would be a, a way to take points off of it for Jason if it was uh, <laughs> if it was uh, recreated in a comical fashion, but um, <laughs> and it and well, it it has been. I think Mel Brooks is high anxiety. Which spoofed, which spoofed Hitchcock movies. Well, has has a very clever twist on it. Actually, I thought I thought it was a pretty funny twist. Even it, uh, Gus Van Sant, one of his early kind of student projects, he did like a shampoo commercial that ended with a psycho uh, <laughs> score and and shots and stuff. Well, he, okay, if that scene had been funny or dumb or unintentionally funny, then I would say yes, Josh. I know you were razzing me, but I'm like, just joking. Yeah, but honestly, that's a conjuring. Like, Jason's <laughs> right. The conjuring reference for people who aren't <laughs> that's right diehard listeners. But but this scene, that shower scene, is so scary because yeah, when you think of how I love that way you said about vulnerable. That that's one of the best aspects is if you think about how vulnerable you feel and a butcher knife mm-hmm. coming at you. Oh my goodness! And not, and even more so when um when you consider that it's happening to who to this point was the lead character. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, this was the focal point of the film. This was the person that everybody was saying, "Okay, here's the person we're following through this story." Yes, and all of a sudden, and you even get the you know, you even get the feeling audience members like, "How are they going to bring her back?" Right? She can't. She can't be gone. Yeah. How are they going? He even went to the point, and again, we're getting into spoilers here, but we've warned you. He even got to the point where he throws her into a trunk and puts her into a bog. And then is and, mopping up the remain. Yeah, I mean it's mopping up everything. And I guarantee you, there were still audience members out there saying, "How are they going to bring her back?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, the times on it. You know, the shower scene begins at about forty-seven minutes into the film, and then you enter a new protagonist at like one hour one minute into the film. You get your your new protagonist, her sister. Right. That's crazy in a film. Well, I'd, I'd argue that Anthony Perkins is potentially your 
He becomes the lead character. Yeah. Yeah, he becomes the lead at that point. Um, just with everything. I mean, there's that even, – and even everything about him. One of the things I always think of in this movie is that, that little exchange he has with, um, with the detective, Martin Balsam. Where Martin Balsam is like, you know, trying to say, are you sure? Can you look? And then, and then Anthony Perkins, he, he all of a sudden is in a corner. You know, and he had been playing it sort of cool the whole way, and then all of a sudden he's mm. now he's a little bit on edge, and and now the detective says, "Okay, there's something not right here." That yeah. seems very well done. That question, yeah, oh, it was, and even the way Anthony Perkins is, because he's so cool, he's so suave at first, and then the minute there's a little bit of a, a a little little bit of a gap in the story that the detective pounces on, then all of a sudden he he unravels a little <laughs> bit. It's amazing, yeah. We've talked about it a lot, and it's been talked about to death, but Anthony Perkins' performance in this film is incredible. I mean, it's oh, one absolutely. of the great all-time film performances, I would say, as well, when we talk about iconic moments from this movie. I just feel like his performance is like a master class in playing this type of um, paranoid character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's really about, it's not just about when he's scary, it's about yeah. how friendly and and nice and just likable. I mean, he just seems like the sweetest small uh-huh. town boy you ever seen. Like, you know, loves his mom. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like his line, "A boy's best friend is his mother," seems very innocent, yet is actually one of the most chilling lines. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like uh, of the film. And like Peeping Tom, I would say, even though what he, even though he as a character is kind of creepy. You also just feel so bad for him that mm-hmm. you can't help but identify with him. Right. Yeah. Right. Like as as you feel bad for him and you you hate the mother. Yeah. You yeah. know you, you you hate the mother character. You're like, wow, she's really <laughs> she's really twisted and evil here. Yeah. Right. I, I don't want to understate how big a deal that was though. What Jason said about you know this main character dying, it's incredible. And you know obviously. Um, People have tried to do it again since, and I feel like Scream is like you know a go-to example of mine. But he really touched on a lot of um, important things in the horror genre, and um, mm-hmm. you know the way they killed Drew Barrymore in the opening scenes of of Scream had a similar effect on me. And I would say, in some ways, it's a little more effective how quickly that happens, simply because you go so long with Marion Crane, and that's why during the introduction of this film i said stick with it because i do think the film lags in that first 27 minutes mm-hmm. um i could do without probably 10 minutes of that and i would be i would be happier to spend that time with norman bates well but 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 i think when i think about scream i, I remember having that feeling you know drew barrymore was the center character on the poster sometimes the only character on the poster depending on what poster you saw and uh and when she dies you're just like, wait, what? Yeah. And the next scene, it starts with Nev Campbell. And I remember thinking, and there's a bit of a scare there with Nev Campbell. And I remember thinking, oh no, like, is this, are they just going to kill her too? Like what's, does everyone die in this movie? <laughs> I was, I just couldn't believe it, you know? And I, and I imagine, I don't remember my first viewing of, of Psycho, unfortunately. This is one of those movies, like when Doc said he saw Jaws 2 first. That was kind of my experience with Psycho, mm-hmm. you know, kind of growing up in the 80s. And, you know, I remember seeing Psycho 2, 3, and even 4, like on TV a lot. And, and I, was, uh-huh. I was more familiar with those films right. um, than with the original. I, I, again, I don't remember when I first saw it, um, but I, I've always loved it. And it's been one of my favorite Same. films yeah. most of my life. Oh, so. yeah. Absolutely. One of, one of mine as well. And, and it's funny because it, it – 
you know, you, Psycho takes you through what you know the one story of of you get what happens in Psycho, and then when you get to Psycho two, you have a much different reaction to it. At least I did, because with Psycho two, you get the feeling like just leave the guy alone. You know, it, leave him alone and he'll be okay. Stop picking at him. You know, right. he's finally beaten his his demons here. Just back the hell off, and and yeah. and everything will be all right. But they can't do that. And it's and it's interesting that it's one of the characters from the original movie that's doing this to him. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm even a fan of I'm a big fan of Psycho Four. I will say, actually, I, and, I, I really like Psycho Two. I really like Psycho Two, and um, uh, you know what? It's funny. Psycho Four was that the beginning? Was that the one with Henry Thomas? That's the one. It's a made-for-TV uh, movie, actually, which is kind of funny about it. But okay, um, yeah, the beginning, and it's where he's on, where he's on the telephone talking to the radio DJ. Okay. You remember oh, right. that? Yes, he's like, yes, yes, he's like yes. in his kitchen talking to this radio talk show DJ uh, okay. through most of the movie. And then we're flashing back to his childhood. Yes, and that's Henry Thomas and you know <laughs> little Elliot from ET as, yeah. as right. young Norman Bates. Yeah. And, and while he's on the radio with the DJ, Leatherface drives by in a car and a truck and saws his head. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so a couple of things about this, you guys. In, in terms of like comparing this to the slashers that followed this is interesting the way this opens because the only thing that this does in its opening is it opens with dramatic music like kind of like really intense score but otherwise there's no real sort of attention getting seen we don't see any killer we don't see any danger we don't get a sense of that and and i think a, a lot of that's just owed to hitchcock's efforts to just shock us surprise us and he's all about misdirection and josh i agree with what you said when you said like that 27 minutes you could have cut some of that out but if you look at what happens in that 27 minutes for example the uh, police officer who's really interested in what this lady's doing and why she's acting so suspicious he stops at one point and watches her across the road and stares at her and i think that you know i'm sure that first time viewers of this film you know, especially if they were familiar with Hitchcock, they thought that the suspense was all about whether she was going to get away with this money that she stole. But it's all misdirection. And, and like, right. you know, she seems like she's really in trouble there, but that's nothing compared to what's coming. And there's even a moment when she's driving and she's thinking about what people are going to think about her as, as, and, and get to know that she's naughty and has a dark side. And then she has this creepy little smile the and you know you get the stormy weather and everything and i think it's um i i don't know i think that he was just he was trying to misdirect us at every turn in this film yeah absolutely and that's that's yep that's why he that's why he had it yeah you're right that's why it started that way that's why we didn't get that one you know shocking sort of uh kill or jump scare or anything like that at the beginning because for all we knew it was going to be this uh this thriller this sort of drama thriller about a woman who steals money and then has to and is on the run. You know, even with with the policeman when she has the run in with the with the cop, you think he might show up later on. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're watching the movies, like, hey, this could come back to you know haunt her. This guy could this this guy can make a reappearance. And in fact, he does make one reappearance at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Now, one thing that a lot of uh, people um, have uh, had issues with the film is the very, very end when we get a, you know, you talk about like this sort of psychological thriller where we actually get a psychiatrist laying it all out for us. Yeah. You know, almost like uh, the explanation after the fact saying, okay, here's exactly what happened and here's what it's all about. Um, I've, I've heard some people saying that that wasn't necessary. Yeah. Well, and, and even if it is necessary to some degree, it's almost like this guy has ESP. I mean, it's so in-depth and long and specific, and he's so confident in everything that he's saying. It's like too much for me. I have yes, problems with it. But <laughs> I will say... I think, first of all, it was, I think it was probably necessary for the audiences of the time, again, just because they didn't have um, much knowledge about, you know, they probably hadn't heard about many psychopathic killers. I think Ed Gein was a model for this film, um, is the rumor, and, and probably for several other, we know at least of one other, but probably uh-huh. several other horror films um, at that time. But I don't think it was in the public consciousness as much. So one, I think Hitchcock probably felt or maybe even the studios felt that that was a necessary scene to let the audience have any idea of, you know, or any feeling of safety or knowing that, you know, why this happened. But, but I think (laughs) the way it ends on, again, Anthony Perkins performance saves that for me because it sets up this weird little moment at the end of the movie that is brilliant on his part Mm -hmm. and his reaction to what they're saying about him is so good. That's yep. that's true. But what about this, though? Imagine, I know this is difficult, but imagine you're a 1960s audience. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you see this guy dress up like his mom and kill people, and he has his mom's dead body in the house with him. Like, how is that not enough to be scary and be like, this guy's freaking crazy? It's, it's enough to be scary. I don't know if, like Josh is saying, the audience is at the time. Maybe the thought was maybe that they haven't seen anything like this before, so connecting those dots. And I feel like they maybe a little some closure as well, just to be able to put yeah. it in context of what they're watching because they get, they just didn't. <laughs> right. They were probably their minds were probably blown in that moment, you know. Oh, and I, yeah. and what, really an interesting thing is when when um, when the sister and and the boyfriend um, put together what happened, you know, think okay, think they know what what went on here. They're all over Norman Bates about, boy, $40,000 would sure be enough to get you out of here, wouldn't it? You know, what, what are you going to do with that money? You know, it's all about that he somehow figured out she had this money. And then at the end, the, the, the psychiatrist just, just said, ah, oh, the money went in into the trunk with the body. This didn't have anything to do with money. This was passion. Yeah. Interesting stuff. All right. Well, um, you know, we've all talked about Psycho at some point. I think we talked about it when we talked about our our top 10 horror films as well. So yeah. we could probably move on at this point, but um, let's do uh, our recommendations if, if people don't know what they are at this point. Uh, Jason, you want to just start again and we'll. Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, this is a, this is a must see for any horror fan and this is a buy for sure. But um, f- for the things that we talked about, I, I take off a couple points. It's an eight out of 10 for me. And the reason it's an eight is because yeah, I think that first 30 minutes is a long time to wait, especially upon rewatches, to get to the good stuff. So there's that. 
And then also at the end, that big old exposition dump, which is just <laughs> egregious to me a little bit. Um, so that's my two points. Otherwise, eight out of ten, buy it. It's a must-see. Okay. Doc? Okay. Um, it's it's a ten for me. Uh, you know, it's on my... So on my all-time favorites list, I, I love the movie. Um, I'm, I uh, I didn't have a problem with the first half hour, and I, uh, I'm more in line with you, Josh. It didn't bother me so much at the end with the psychiatrist talking because I know why it was done. I want to know why it was put it there. Besides, we did get that really, like you said, that really great scene that closes the movie out. Um, and just everything in between uh, the innovations and, and the filmmaking technique. I mean, that shot of overhead – with with Martin Balsam at the top of the stairs, yeah. you know uh, that is, and and just how how sudden it was, and even that would have been very jarring for an audience seeing it for the first time. Um, everything that that went into it, um, it's a ten, absolutely, and it's a definite buy. Yeah, um, I think you know it was yeah we didn't talk much about uh, filmmaking technique in this one. But I, I, I liked what you said about it, and I think um, there were a lot of things that would be just reused over and over and over again um, throughout cinema history, but particularly in slashers and particularly in Jalos. I feel like this is probably one of the major – we know that Hitchcock was a major influence on the French New Wave, but I think this must have also been a major influence on the Italian Jalos because mm. um, we see a lot of – uh, the elements of Psycho uh, play out again and again in those films. And one of those things is um, is keeping the killer a secret. And they do a great job of that here. Um, it's done to great effect. And uh, and I really, really enjoy this movie. I, I could almost take off a point or two for the introduction because I do have an issue with it. But this is just one of the greatest movies ever made. And so I'm going to still give it a 10 and, and call it a bye as well you know what um i was gonna yeah. say this before sorry i i feel like uh that eaten alive was kind of a remake of psycho except they needed a a different pseudo monster and so instead of using the mother they used the crocodile <laughs> and it, anyway i think that's very cool to me that's a funny idea i had not thought of that random side yeah, note me neither <laughs> sorry very good <laughs> <laughs> I've called you here today for a good reason. What do you have here? A fragments of cloth. Is one of these students a psychosexual killer? murdered just one week ago. Or are they just playing erotic games? Not so innocent erotic games. Eager to test the limits of pleasure. A psychosexual killer is stalking. Son of a bitch! What happened? That guy was spying on us. Sean, what we have he was. Come back, Sean. A killer who takes his pleasure differently. <laughs> So it saturates the screen with terror. All right, let's move on to uh, the fourth film of the evening and talk, move into the Giallo territory. 
Um, so those, for those who don't know, we can do a little introduction to uh, giallos. Now, I've been promising for a long time uh, that my new segment on the show is going to be called Yellow Scare, and I was going to talk about giallo films. But number one, I haven't been on the show enough to do segments. <laughs> and right. number two, I don't know if, we, if any of us have done them. Have you guys continued to your segments? I have not done my segment in, in quite a while. It's funny because I had somebody recommend – oh, who was it uh, – I don't want to say who because I I can't remember now back at the comments where somebody because I had talked about a couple horror doc themed documentaries in a row that somebody recommend maybe I switch up my my theme to that. I mean that's something obviously Josh I think you know you're more the documentary person but I would be kind of interested in maybe switching it up but as far as my um you know uh indie slog no I don't even remember the last time I did one. <laughs> Yeah, that's something we need, we all need to get back on at some point. But um, right. for now, um, let's do a brief introduction to the giallo genre um, as we talk about Torso, uh, nineteen seventy-three. So um, the first thing I, I would say is that giallos uh, are based on basically these pulp novels of the nineteen twenties in Italy, and the reason they call them giallos is because uh, the covers of these little pulp novels were yellow and giallo means yellow in Italian. And that is kind of, um, one of the main influences or at least was, um, was credited as being one of the main influences on, uh, Mario Bava's film, the girl who knew too much, um, based on not only these, these pulp novels, but other stuff like Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and, and a lot of these kind of detective novels. Um, but Bava's films had, a focus, as we've said, on, on the killer. Um, there's a lot of time spent with the killer in these films. And, um, and I think Torso, in my opinion, is the giallo that kind of turns into slasher. I think, that's, I think that there were a lot of great giallos before Torso, but the reason I wanted to talk about that one specifically is because I just feel that's, that's where the genre takes the turn. And, um, and that was kind of my reason for picking it. Do you guys have any thoughts on that stuff? One of the things that always sort of sticks out with me about Jallos is you feel they're set up to be almost like a murder mystery, a whodunit. Yeah. Yet they never actually provide you with enough clues to determine on your own whodunit. <laughs> you That's know? interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So it's <laughs> you're funny. never really going to be able to logically figure it out. It's. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say never. There, there may have been. I haven't seen every jail, and I'm not. I'm not certainly not an expert in that. Um, but I know for the ones I have seen, um, you know, you could you could sit there try to figure out. Okay, let's look back on this. Let's look back on that. Blah blah blah. Maybe there's something that might be able to to help you. But in the end, you're just gonna be like, wow, I never would have thought. <laughs> the, killer was, the killer was this person. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. That's interesting. I, I, because I love mysteries. That's actually probably my entrance into horror came through my love of mysteries. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why I am such a big fan of the slasher and the giallo is because, um, they often have that kind of, uh, mystery element to them. Right. But, that, but that's a good point that I haven't really thought of. And as I think about torso, that's, that's true. Um, the thing that, stood out to me is how effective those misdirections were. And I think because a right. lot of the time you see them coming from a mile away. Mm -hmm. um, yet when I watch torso, um, I have no idea, you know, and it's, and right. I, and I really become, um, 
kind of invested in each of these different characters and and and, and wanting to know who the killer is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, don't know which version you guys saw, but I I saw the version that I saw has an introduction by Eli Roth. Did you have? I saw see? that. That's the one I have that on Blu-ray. I have it on Blu-ray, and that was the one I saw as well, which was the English version. There's an Italian version that's three minutes longer. Ooh. Um, but the one I saw was the English version. Well, yeah. no, it's in the Italian version. Yeah, hmm. I, I'm kind of interested now myself. Uh, I just sat down today and watched it, and I said, well, let's watch this one, because I figured it was what you guys were going to be seeing as well. But then once the movie was over, I'm like, man, what, what, what's worth those three minutes? What, I wonder I what know. those are. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's funny, as I'm watching this introduction by Eli Roth, because I've seen the movie a, a several, well, a couple of times at least, um, but as I, as I watched it, in preparation for this time, I watched this introduction to Eli Roth and I was thinking about it as we were discussing, you know, these red herrings, because he makes a really funny comment about it, actually. He says, um, and I wrote this down, he says, you truly believe that every Italian man in this movie is capable of rape. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was really well put. I saw his introduction as I'm watching the movie. I'm like, yeah, wow, they're all these, these I mean, these lecherous <laughs> characters that, you know, and they, even even the uncle. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. big time, the uncle. And that makes, <laughs> no. and I think it makes these red herrings really believable, you know? It, it doesn't. And there yeah. was a time, there, for a, I mean, I don't, uh, to go too deep into spoilers, but throughout the movie, I, there were like three different characters I were, I was thinking of for the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and toward the end, there was one in particular where I was focused on, I said, it's going to be this person. Now, guys, so, I think of all the films we're discussing, this may be the least seen. Yes, um, yes, I agree. Okay. I agree. So I'm I'm trying to tiptoe around it here without going into yeah. like who, but I will just say that when the killer's identity is is revealed, I said, "Wow, I never would have in a million years." Mm-hmm. And I love that. I I love to be surprised like that. Mm-hmm. They got me. You know what, guys? I'll I'll confess here that these um Josh, I've been really excited about your yellow scare segment because honestly, um. Well, first of all, I'm not super great on foreign cinema, but especially like this is one of my blind spots. And so I don't know a ton about yeah. it, I'll be honest. But And in, in mine too. I, mm-hmm. I don't know a lot about it either. But it, it seems to me though, like my impression of these is, you know how in American horror films, it's like, it's what, 80% horror and then you get like, um, I don't know, 20% or less is like, sexual related material right (laughs) well in these films it seems like it's like (laughs) 80 percent, you know sexual material and then like well maybe maybe 70 30 with the horror or 60 40 or something but no i think you're closer with the 80 20 the 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 horror is the smaller element and you know because like in america like you know violence is more accepted sex is less accepted but whereas like in other countries it seems like sex is more accepted Violence is less accepted, and I feel like that's prominent here. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think what I don't think ten seconds tick off the tick off the runtime before you you get your first uh, <laughs> you know before you get your first uh, glimpse. Yeah, and I think for our uh, slasher fans out there who tick off these elements as you know to uh, to establish whether or not this has been a good slasher, they definitely won't be disappointed by that aspect. No, of the film, but I, you know, I was, uh, I w- it was interesting though watching this kind of back to back with those other movies. Um, it's been thirteen years, is that right? Since the last movie we talked about, and boy, has the gore and sexuality taken huge, yeah, 
jump up in that yes. amount of time. I mean, unbelievable jump up in that. It, it really, it really did. I mean, yes, this is now. Those movies were pre Herschel Gordon Lewis. This is post, but I don't even think Herschel Gordon Lewis's influence had as much to do on on these movies as just. You know, it just seemed like the natural progression for this type of film. I mean, I think I think Herschel Gordon Lewis is important to talk about, and we you mentioned him before in this discussion. Um, and again, there were a lot of movies we could have chosen for kind of precursors to uh, the slasher genre, but I think uh-huh. Blood Feast is one that comes up a lot. Oh yeah, and um, and I think that's very legitimate, and that that's that you know was definitely in contention as I was thinking about. Um, movies we we could talk about for this episode. So I think you know I think he played a big role in the influence. Yeah. But whether or not it was specifically on the Giallos, but definitely in the direction that horror and, and slashers, in particular, would go. And Blood Feast is the first one. It's fun. I think in the um, there's a documentary out called uh, On Herschel Gordon Lewis mm-hmm. uh, that came out a couple years ago, and he, he he has an opening line in it that I think is hilarious when he's talking about Blood Feast. He said, Blood Feast is a lot like a Walt Whitman poem. It's no good, but it was the first of its kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. I like that quote. And yeah. and yeah, Blood Feast, I mean, that's a movie that, yes, I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, we're talking about Psycho, about how impressive it was from a filmmaking standpoint. Blood Feast is almost the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. You know, it's not a well-made movie. Um, it's uh, just, you know, t- from a technical standpoint, from acting, from, from any of that, but what it does have is the gore. And I think that's what ties it together. And it's still to this day, effectively shocking gore. Yeah. It's funny. I'm, as you're, as you're talking, I'm looking at some of the critical response to the film and, um, variety reviewed blood feast. Um, <laughs> their, their quotes are totally inept shocker. Incredibly crude and unprofessional from start to finish. An insult even to the most puerile and salacious of audiences. <laughs> uh, and that's pretty similar to the review I got from Variety um, for my documentary. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely a film that was not appreciated. And, and as Doc said, it's probably for good reason that um, it got some of those types of reviews. But nevertheless, influential, I think. Absolutely. I mean, the the scene where he's taking that leg, he has that leg that he's putting into the oven, that it it looks real. Yeah. You know? I mean, it looks, and and, the, and there's the one scene that always gets me at the end is when they're in that dark room and they flick on the light and there's blood everywhere mm-hmm. and entrails and everything. It's 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 jarring and it, it works. And I think that... Uh, that was the one area that that the film really it, it set the bar, and that's what really started. Uh, I think putting you know with with the gore moves, you have to at least look back and say yes, it does something to do. Again, I don't know with the with the jowls. I'm sure it was an influence in some regard, but these stories seem to lend themselves to that sort of gore anyway. And there are mm-hmm. some, there are a couple of difficult scenes to watch in in this movie. One one involving a car. Yeah, that I thought was wow. You know, it's not even just the first hit; it's the second and third. <laughs> I thought the car scene was quite watchable. <laughs> really? Oh, well, just, well. He's talking about earlier on. In the I'm, I'm just joking. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Jason's a big fan of, <laughs> of that. Of that. Uh, <laughs> the performers in that scene. Um, oh, okay. But you know, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because as graphic as the film can be, with both the blood and the and the sexuality, it also does play some of the violence off screen. I was surprised, again, upon rewatch, because I had remembered it being a pretty gory film 
Um, but but some of that is kind of left up to the imagination, and honestly, it's a, it's very effective in that way. I think. Um, mm-hmm. But you know that car scene that you're talking about, um, the shot that I always remember is um, her face smashed up against the glass, and boy, that is scary and yeah. visceral. Yeah. And in this movie, we also have a masked killer, and it's a very cool, creepy mask. Um, it's basic, and you know, it's um, maybe relatable to some of the other ones we'll, we'll be talking about tonight with the town, the town, the dreaded sundown, or mm-hmm. you know, I think about uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Two uh, are kind of in this just very basic um, formation of a mask, but. Um, I really like the look of the killer in this movie and yeah, the, the, uh, scarf, <laughs> um, tie in that kind of happens is actually really cool and kind of weird in its own way as well. And of course you have the black gloves, um, you know, from the, from the typical giallo killer, but it's, uh, uh-huh. it's interesting. Yeah. I thought, you yeah. know, the look of this killer. No, I, I think so too. And I, I think it's sort of, uh, lent itself to what made it, um, uh, you know, a little scarier was that this is now we're getting into the whole um, anonymous killer, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we, where we don't know anything about him. We don't know, again, we don't know where he's going to be. That's always the thing about Halloween that gets me, you know, and even moves with Jason and all that. You never know when you go around the corner if they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. And I think you get a little bit of that, at least with, with this movie. You yeah. know, because you just never know where what the where this guy is, where where what he's watching, and where he's going to turn up. Yeah, and again, the car scene. I love the way that scene starts out, um, where you know the there's kind of like some hanky panky going on in the car, and uh, <laughs> they notice that they're being watched by this uh-huh. guy in this mask, and the guy just takes off to chase after the guy. The thing I love about it is the guy's still there. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That's played really interesting. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting way to play that scene out. And it's it super scary. Mm-hmm. I was actually, when I meant car, I was actually thinking of a later scene, a kill scene that it actually involved the car. Oh, mm. oh yeah. Oh, okay. Of course. Yeah. You know, okay. and I thought that one, I thought was the one that was a little harder to watch. No, I, I didn't have as much, I didn't have as hard a time uh, <laughs> with that, with the first one watching it. Right. Um, but I agree that it was effective. Right. Um, so I Thinking the second one. So I thought one thing that was interesting about this movie is we, you know, we talked about possibly the difference in the way sexuality is used in these early proto slashers as opposed to kind of the heyday of slashers. I feel like this movie's right in the middle of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, there's a lot of sexuality, but um, some of that's really human sexuality, like we see with yeah. some of those earlier films. Um, some of it is used in the way we would see later with like, kind of like this moral, um, punishment for improper sexuality. So Mm -hmm. we've got, um, our final girl in this movie who is arguably, you know, the most chaste of the, of the people, you know, that we, (laughs) that's true. The female characters that we see also this movie, you know, we, we've been calling it torso, which is how I was introduced to the film, but. Another title it has um, in English is Carnal Violence. Um, or sorry, <laughs> is it Carnal Violence? Yeah, that's right. It is Carnal, oh, yeah. yeah I'm carnal sure Violence. Right. But, but the original Italian name, um, and there's a couple different translations, um, but it's the, the bodies bear traces of carnal violence is, is one kind of direct translation. But another translation is 
the bodies show signs of rape, which I, you know, which is basically what the carnal violence translates to, mm. um, by way of, you know, just speaking rather than a, you know, than a exact translation. Right. When they say carnal violence, they, they're actually referring to rape. And I thought that's kind of interesting too, as being the title of the film, you know? Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, definitely. The body shows definitely. signs of rape, I guess. is what that But you know, in a, in a way I was saying, as I was watching the movie, um, you know, some people, I guess, could make the argument that it was exploitative, you know, uh, with with the nudity. But for me, it wasn't because I thought that that was really what the movie was sort of all about. You know, right. it, it was really the sexuality that was driving it. I mean, every male character, I mean, so going along with what Eli Roth said, even the ones who, who aren't really involved in the story, the, those guys in the village who just happen to see these girls – Coming yeah. into town, every time we see them, they're talking about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know they're talking exactly. about these girls. Mm-hmm. So the the sexuality in this movie is is the driving force behind it. Yeah, and it and in fact, and I won't give any spoilers here, but when we when all is revealed, um, you realize that that's also part of the the motor or the engine behind these killings and i i tell you one of my criticisms of this film is that is not i mean that is really not clear i actually had um i had to revisit a part of the film i won't say which part but i had to revisit a part of the film in order to like put all that together when the revelation is given so i I do not think this story is told very well did you guys have a problem with that no I love the way it's told. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it at all. Like, I, I am good with, like, I'm so impressed with all the misdirection and the mystery of the killer. That's great. And as we've mentioned, there are other things that are entertaining, so to speak. But um, in the kills, there are creepy scenes. But, like, honestly, the, the this thing, I, I really felt like it was, like, um, kind of a slog to get through the what? way it unfolds. No. <laughs> yeah, wow. I, I, I thought you were going to be the most excited about this, actually, Jason, by far. I, I, didn't, I didn't think, I didn't think, I, I can't think of a, uh, of a, of a two, three minute sequence in this movie that I wasn't riveted. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly That's can't. Easy. I mean, that, I mean, from, from, from the way that it was, I mean, even if you think that, that the, like towards the end of the movie, there's, there's um, now Eli Roth had said there's like 20 minutes of no dialogue. It's not quite that, but there's like, there's a lack of dialogue, but so much going on, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that house. And there's a scene with a key. Yeah. Where you're watching this and the character's trying to, I, without going, I don't want to go into too much, but trying to get, get this key goes to a certain way to do it. And then you feel like, Oh God, it's not going to happen. Well, see- and then what happens there? You're like, Whoa. And that, you know, this this is it just automatically changed that scene. That, um, go ahead. Sorry, I'm really sorry. That that key scene is another great example because um, the the whole necessity of a key. I mean, that wasn't that wasn't clear to me. I mean, there are so many things in this movie that weren't clear, and it wasn't like I wasn't drifting off. I was paying attention and everything. I pay, I picked up on it because uh, when 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 the when when the person left the room, they pulled the key out of the door. And that's the reason they would do it. those old doors locked from either side. Yeah, yeah, that was the reason it was done. So I did pick up on that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it was my first time watching this film, so maybe that's part of it. But uh, and, and it's not like I was lost the whole time or anything. 
but you know when when the revelations all came to came out i'm like what like uh, okay well i guess so and i went back and revisited and i'm like okay i guess i guess you can see that so that that was my issue with it but i guess you guys are better movie no, watchers I, or something i i i like i actually thought it was yeah i think I, it was setting itself up i thought to have a different you know final girl mm-hmm. you know i was looking yeah, me at too. The, I absolutely the one girl thinking okay this is going to be the final girl here this is who we're following and um ugh, i hate doing this because it's, it's it's no matter how we discuss this these these aspects it's going to spoil it in some way I would um, just but, say there aren't only red herrings in term of, in terms of you know the antagonist, but also the protagonist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, that's the best way to put it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a true. Um, this is a true ensemble piece. I mean, there are a lot of characters in this movie, and that's another thing I like about it. I feel like it just it's weird, but I, I kind of like you really get the sense, and part of that's the, the locations as well. But you really get the sense of being in this place with all these characters, and I like all these weird little side conversations that are taking place and these side scenes and. I don't know. Uh-huh. I, I felt re- it feels very immersive to me as a film. Hmm. I yeah. really appreciated that about it. Yeah. I, I, did, I did too. And there was no way. It's another one of those movies where you're not going to be able to predict it. You, you can't predict no. where it's going to go from point A to point B and, and the path it's going to take. Yeah. You know, is, and I love that about it. Which is to its credit. I'll tell you what I love about this film. I do love something about it for sure. But And that's, um, it's not the first one to do this, but since we're talking about it in light, in the light of a proto slasher, this is one of those films where you get a group of friends who end up going to a remote location. And I, I love that because, you know, I, but I think, so I'm going to backhanded compliment it, I guess. But so I love that, that, you know, you got that convention in this proto slasher when there's this remote place that they're going to and you got like four girls there. But I will say, without giving any spoilers, I do think that that was kind of squandered in the way that we see that unfold in slashers today. I can see that criticism, but you know, again, keep in mind, you know, where this where this sits in the history of the mm-hmm. slasher. And- yeah, this this didn't have any of those those right. standards to follow. Granted, I'll give you know? I'll give you guys that for sure. That's true. All right. Well, I you know I. I'm glad we could talk about Torso. <laughs> I really like this movie. Um, and I think it's very significant um, as we look at uh, the evolution of kind of these proto-slashers into the slasher genre. I feel like this is a real turning point in, uh, in Giallo's, which I think were obviously a big influence on on the early slashers. So um, let's go ahead and give our ratings again. J- let's just start with Jason and, and go around. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Thank you. And I, I saw that I had more notes written on this that I <laughs> I've been looking at a certain part of my page and not going over. Well, it's the, fine. The, let's talk. Let's talk about it. Sorry about that. Um, no. well, well, another criticism I've had before I give you the rating here is um, I, I realize that this has had a couple different names as far as the title. But, you know, there is a reason it's called Torso. And actually, I really I wish that that had been made clearer as well. I think that was another opportunity squandered in this film because it wasn't crystal clear. They didn't really bring it home, the whole torso aspect of it. And I wish they would have. Well, now that you can't you can't actually blame that on the filmmaker because he wasn't setting out to do that. He had no it, he that was named Torso for its American release. So he was, was not American, even focusing yeah, on that. that named it that. Yeah, so he, he his focus was on something entirely different. He 
he didn't he had no idea that they were going to change the, the title of the torso when he was making the movie even so though i mean the, the action that he's doing that the killer is doing mm-hmm. um i i wish that we knew a little more about that i wish they showed it more or they showed the final result but it was just not real clear, and that bugs me a little bit. Oh, I, I can I can see that. All right, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, so that that's a little bit. But um, and this something made me laugh. This is very random. But the milk boy says a line. He says, "I have to pick up the empties," referring to the bottle that's empty. I thought that 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 use of the word empties came from like a Sprite commercial. So I didn't realize that calling something like that <laughs> empties was. <laughs> Sorry. The other other thing about this movie is um, we we actually get a backstory explanation for this killer, which I think is um, kind of interesting. I mean, we we see some things in that backstory which are, uh, you know, not 100 percent convincing, but still interesting to watch. And it's like, wow, this is kind of a weird little film. So I kind of like that as well. And I guess that was my um. My the rest of my comments, but anyway, as far as a slasher film, a proto slasher, boy, this is a <laughs> you guys. I enjoyed myself watching it. I'll say that, but I I think it's a, a poorly made film in terms of the storytelling, which I've said. What? So for me, this is a this is a very and and this is what I'm going to do for it because I do think it's worth watching once in your life. But this is a very low priority rental, and I give it a four out of ten. Holy cats! <laughs> wow, I'm sh- I'm seriously blown away. Yeah, that's when you I- when you said you were excited to have this conversation, I thought it was going to be because you were so excited about Torso. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I that's that's incredibly low, <laughs> far too low of a rating for the for this movie. To be honest with you, as far as I mean, I'm guessing you're not as familiar with with shallows then because it does it, a lot of these Italian movies sort of are told in that way, you know, and yeah. the way this movie is. Um, and I don't have a problem with it and I'm not that experienced with it either, but to be honest with you, this is, I'd say now my favorite shallow that of, of the ones that, of the ones that I've seen. And I haven't seen that many, hmm. but I would put this one right at the top. Yeah. Um, I'd also say even, I mean, if you think about, the, again, the heyday of the slasher. This is better than most of those, <laughs> I yeah. would say. Like what? the major, better than the majority of slashers. No like, way, Josh. Oh yeah, this oh. is in the top tier. In my, if I was going to call this a slasher, I would, this is in the top tier for me. Oh my goodness, yeah, I, I would I would put it up there too. I mean, I and I'm a big fan of the slashers, of the slasher movies. You know, um, but yeah, exactly. this is this is one that uh, I was I was really. Uh, blown blown away by it. I was really impressed with it. I was impressed by how how much it kept my attention. How I was just in tune with everything. How I was trying to guess who the killer was, and and yet even in the back of my mind as I was doing that, thinking I, I was setting myself up that I could be very surprised, but still thinking I might know who it is. Um, how it kept me guessing like that. How I was interested in 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 these uh, in the characters and 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 just the the way that the story went and all the different um you know twists and turns that it took i remember what i wanted to say now the scene um that that kind of jarred me a little bit was that bike wipeout that motorbike wipeout <laughs> i mean that was done without special effects and that yeah. was pretty that was bad <laughs> i mean he hit the ground hard yeah <laughs> 
You know, and I, the, maybe that affected me because I had a very similar wipeout uh, when I was a kid. I attempted to jump a creek, and um, I never picked the front of the bike up, and ended up doing a face plant on the other side. Oh, <laughs> so maybe man. that that affected me a little bit, but um, still, um, you know, that ca- camera never cuts away. That's just boom, he's down. <laughs> um, and I, and again, I like that. And the movie was just so was just shot in such an interesting way. And and that 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 setting, that that sort of old world, you know, ancient in in, in a lot of ways meeting with the modern world, you know, like um uh, I love the the movies that are set in Italy and, and especially like in, in Rome and so forth where where you get that sort of um that, that that sort of mixture of old and new. Um and I think that there's a lot of that in this movie. And just the way it was done, you know, the, the, that one guy, I don't know if he was a shoemaker. I don't know what he was when he went up to sort of spy on the girls and ends up being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he's running through the streets and the way the camera is following him. Um, I think that that more than anything is what kept me in tune with it was just, just the innovations that, 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 that uh, Sergio Martino was, was using to, to, uh, to tell it, you know, all the, all the different interesting camera angles and, and, and um, you know, uh, techniques that he was using yeah. really made it very interesting to me. Even in the parts that could have been slower, I think that's what, that's what kept me in tune with it. Yeah. So I'm going to give it an eight and a half. And I'm going to say, wow. you know, I'd say, yeah, I'm going to say it's uh, just from from that alone. I'd say it's worth it's it's worth buying. I mean, you have to know what you're getting with Jallos, you know. Um, but as far as Jallos go, this is top. Like Josh was saying, top tier for slashes is definitely top tier for Jallos. So if you're any sort of fan of that type of movie, this is one that you're going to want in your collection. Yeah, I, thank you, Doc. I agree. <laughs> With you wholeheartedly. Um, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I, I love the way this movie shot, first of all. Um, it looks so good. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a huge fan of everything about this movie. Now, I will say it's a little sleazy. Um, well, yeah. It's a but, lot. It's a lot. But again, compared to um, a lot of the uh, you know slasher movies of the 80s that I, that I love – at least this is done with some style. You know what I mean? Like it's not, um, it doesn't feel totally gratuitous. It feels like part of these characters' stories to me. It feels like part of the world that we're in. It feels right. like it's part of the setting to me. Again, it's kind of like putting me into the story more because it just feels like, oh, like I'm on kind of on this little uh, vacation to this little town in Italy or something. That's how I right. feel when I'm, I'm watching the movie. Um, <laughs> I thought it was interesting that, and again, in that introduction, Eli Roth talked about how this was a big influence on um, on hostile t- hostile films in general, but particularly hostile too. Uh, the beginning, uh, you know, with the art students and everything, I thought that was that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw a lot of other um, things that you know the filmmakers have um, picked up on and and used along the way as I was watching the movie. But but I, yeah, for me, it's just it's just a great movie. I think um, in a yeah. lot of ways, there was even. Um, Something that I thought was kind of interesting is that when this was released in the U.S., it was double billed with um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, as mm. much as um, a lot of people I think haven't seen this movie, ironically, for those who uh, who saw the Texas Chainsaw run in the United States 
when it first happened, those people probably have all seen it because um, mm, it's right. a very common double bill with Texas Chainsaw. But Interesting. Anyway, I, li- I like this movie. I, I think this is um, something that I thought was interesting is this is around the time they started referring to these films as spaghetti slashers. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as opposed to, uh, to Giallo. So uh, this, is a, this is a really high rating for me too. I, I'm going to have to go with uh, eight on this one. Um, I, I, I own it and I think it's a definite must buy for people who love slasher movies. I feel like this will be an excellent addition to your collection. And whereas some of those other movies that we've talked about, whereas I think they're excellent, excellent films, I feel like this one really fits in your slasher collection as opposed to, to those other two. Okay, well, let's uh, move on now from Torso and into our last discussion film of the evening. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the phantom killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in The Town That Dreaded Sundown. We've uh, got a great little (laughs) piece of history, at least. Um, (laughs) A very low-budget film by Charles B. Pierce, um, who was also appears as spark plug in the movie. Oh boy. Um, yeah. Which is a fun character. Huge right. mistake. <laughs> oh, really? You think? I mean, the, you know, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Okay. Okay. This is the town, the dreaded sundown. Um, it's a 1976 film. It's an independent film. And this is a, a film that I've been scared of before I saw it. I right. think the poster is one of the coolest looking posters ever um as i mentioned the yes. killer's look is somewhat akin to torso or uh, the second friday the 13th film or the real life zodiac killer right um, yeah yep. which is crazy which there are a crazy number of parallels there by the way very between. interesting i was i was i was watching this with my wife the other night actually <laughs> and uh yeah it was it was crazy how many things were similar not only in the actual story, because this is based on a true story as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting, the parallels between those actual true stories. But also the way they were shot. I almost have to feel like David uh, Fincher took a look at this movie and was uh, and was looking at it as an influence <laughs> when he shot it. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But the weird thing about this is it kind of rides that line between a, kind of a documentary presentation. There's mm-hmm. this really awkward voiceover throughout the film. Yeah. Um, and I like the guy's voice, but man, it's just, it's, it, you're right. It's put in there awkwardly. Yes. Yeah. And then a lot of it's unnecessary to the story. I was thinking about it, you know, whenever I listen, whenever I hear voiceover, I try to think about, okay, why did they use this as a tool? And oftentimes it's because what they were trying to communicate was unclear, but I would say a big portion of this wasn't necessary to tell the story. Um, you still get everything just from watching. It. And so I had to think, um, that one of the reasons they were doing it was to give it that real life feel. Like you're watching yeah. something that really happened, like a newsreel kind of tone. And I wondered if, and if that was the case as well, but basically just to give a brief setup here, the town, the dreaded sundown is about uh, an actual killer in Texas. 
um, or Texarkana, I should Texarkana. say, Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. I was quoting uh, Dewey from Scream there when I said it was about a killer in Texas. Um, <laughs> as he, he name drops this film. Yes. And, and I wonder if those characters in that film also aren't heavily influenced by, by this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few moments in the film that feel like uh, a Dewey kind of moment. But, um, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so it's about, it's about this real-life serial killer and these police that are trying to track him down. And, um, yeah, I, I, I had something that was kind of a leg- legendary to me. And I had, I've for years owned this really terrible bootleg copy and, you know, I'd seen it once or twice, but it wasn't until the Blu-ray recently came out that, um, I really sat down and paid attention to it and it looks so good now. I mean, it's actually, it looks really beautiful, even though it's, uh, you know, pretty simply shot and uh, like right. the film stock looks so good. Can, uh, mm-hmm. Colors I, and everything. Can I ask you guys a question about the Blu-ray? Because yeah. I do not have the Blu-ray. Okay. Um, One of my huge problems with this movie is like, it. it's so dark, it's hard to see any of the action. Like it's not well lit at all. Now, is that improved any better on the Blu-ray? Because that was uh-huh. my biggest complaint. I would say yes, because I didn't have a problem seeing anything on the Blu-ray. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was pretty crystal clear as well. I mean, it's definitely not um, well lit, just in terms of a budgetary point of view. Right. um, Because it was a very low-budget film, but it's not hard to – I wouldn't call it hard to see. Oh, okay. That's good to hear. It was probably just the copy you you had gotten a hold of. Okay. And again, I've been operating on a pirated version for years. Um, Yeah. So anyway – I will say I was less impressed with it this time than ever before. And that kind of made me sad because I always thought I liked this movie. Um, but, I, but I'd love to hear what you guys had to say, uh, have to say about uh, The Town that Dreaded Sundown. Well, can we talk real quick more about the, um, the, the poster art and then the look yeah. of the killer? Because I think Absolutely. those two things are significant. And what always shocks me, number one, is if you look at this poster art, which is one of my favorite horror posters, actually, yeah. um, the mask... As, and I never hear anybody say this ever, and I, I can't understand it because it's the first thing I think of. The mask reminds me a little bit of like a Ku Klux Klan outfit. Hmm. Now, hmm. Did, did no one else get that at all? I, I didn't get that. When I saw this, I just saw Jason from Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah, Part 2, right. And, you know, uh, that's what I saw. But no, that's interesting. I, I, didn't make that, I didn't make that connection. It absolutely makes sense, and especially in the area that they were in. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so and like, I wonder if maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is freaky about it. But in, but in terms of the way he looks in the film... Oh my goodness, so scary. Like, yeah. there's something about this guy's eyes because you can see the eyes through the mask and then the way he breathes in the mouth. And, and That's the, what gets me more than anything. Is you, never, you never see this guy's face, yet it's a ter- tremendous performance. Yeah, because when he breathes, the, the cloth goes into his mouth and out when he exhales. Scary. And that's like, there's something so... Uh, there, something creepy. It just makes my blood run cold. But, right. his, but his eyeballs... Are look, they look extremely intense, and and that's the best way I know how to describe it. I mean, do you guys feel that way too? Yeah, I I definitely do. So even you though know? it's a simple mask, and yeah, I mean, it's this was um my understanding is this was clearly an inspiration to the Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, the the burlap sack mask, uh-huh. right? But but I mean, essentially the real life Zodiac Killer. <laughs> yeah, 
right. that too. But even so, I mean, I, I just still th- think it is, despite how simple it is, it, it scares me on a really um, uh, visceral type of level. Uh-huh. Just wanted to say that. I would agree because this is a very uh, intense killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy, this guy, obviously, and the, this is now we're getting into the we don't know anything about him. Because I guess the real the real life uh, figure it's based on, they didn't know a whole lot about him. Um, but this this guy clearly has some some major issues, right? You know, and even even what he's doing with some of the female victims and and uh, it's it's uh, it's really something. I think is there's uh, it's it's pretty intense. So why in the world do you guys think? I mean, because um. Let me see here. Last house on the left. What is it? Nineteen seventy-two, right? Yep. Um, I mean, do you think that those bumbling idiot cops in that inspired the bumbling, you know, the, the stupid cop stuff in this? Because I, 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 I don't know if I. It, yes, I'm going to say I, that was one issue that I had a problem with too. Is as the scenes with you know with the keys and and, and waiting in the car and and you know Charles B. Pierce is the character. Yeah, I, yes. I did have a problem. I did have a problem with that character. Um, but you even got that, even, I mean, you got that sort of stupid cop in Black Christmas, which came out yeah. a little bit before this, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you had that, that sort of character. I don't know that it was influenced by those movies. Um, I, I didn't get that feel from it. It could have been, oh. but I didn't get that feel from it. I just thought it was more like an attempt to to throw humor into the story, almost like uh, in, in that regard, I guess it's the same as the other movies. Cause that was what they were trying to, I was obviously that's what, um, you know, last house on the left was trying to do um, in, in a completely illogical way. Yeah. I mean, taking, taking right after the, the most, the most dramatic scene in the movie and then going to a Laurel and Hardy routine. Right. Like <laughs> right after it would made no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. Um, this one, it was just like, okay, let's throw some comedy in there. Yeah. And I, and I, well, and I feel like the, the tonal shifts in this and the, because it's weird because it's like almost like a documentary style, as Josh said, it's almost like a docudrama or a true crime uh-huh. recreate. And some of it's like pretty deadly serious. Yeah. And then other times you've got this, you know, monkeying around and man, that it, it just takes me out of it. It really kills it for me. So that's what, that's one complaint I had. See, this is done by Charles. P. He obviously did the legend of Boggy Creek. Right. Yeah. Which is another movie that was, had a documentary sort of feel to it up until the end. And which in the last scene, we get a very, um, very dramatic, uh, retelling of something that happened to these people in a, in a, in a house. It's funny because that movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek, so many people think it's one of the most frightening movies they've ever seen. <laughs> Part of that is because they saw it so young because it was rated G. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah. That was me. It was, it was a G-rated movie. So parents took kids to see this thinking, oh, this is okay. It's a G-rated movie. This is, this is like you know Bambi and, and Dumbo and, and it's the same rating as those films. So that by the time it gets to that scene towards the end, kids are like, petrified and understandably so Confe- here's a confession and i should not admit this on a horror movie podcast but i can barely look at that poster it it it, it creep you know the poster art for that yeah for legend of boggy creek yeah man yeah. that freaks me out so bad yeah. 
And illustrated by Ralph McQuarrie, who also did, did the uh, Town of the Dreaded Sundown poster. So right. this guy's pretty, pretty guy's solid. Pretty good. Yeah, Absolutely. He stuff. knows what he's doing. Yeah. Apparently, he um, also did those original Star Wars posters before Drew Struzan did his version of them. Nice. But those, uh, those nice. original yeah, Star cool. Wars posters. That's cool. That is, that is, that is good. Um, I See, now, I, I didn't have a problem with um, the, the documentary portions of the movie. I kind of, I kind of liked that. Um, I think I could have I, liked it as an introduction, but it was another one of those things. I think both, even though, again, I didn't hate the comedy stuff uh-huh. as their own separate <laughs> scenes, but they are bad in the context of this film. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's again, why it didn't bother me as bad when I was a little kid. Cause I wasn't, I was glad to have that break maybe from, from this stuff, but but what I felt about the documentary scenes is that they just really slow the film down to just a dead, you know, pace when every time they come on, recurringly. I didn't mind them at the very beginning, but okay. Mm. I again, it didn't. I, I, some reason they didn't bother me. Um, it has a cool maybe, tone. I, I'll give yeah, it. Yeah, it does, and I think that that I I think I sort of connected with that too. Uh, you know, there's the scene where a guy's sitting in his chair. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, something happens to him. Mm-hmm. That, that's the type of thing this movie, I think, had. This is, again, a, a lot like the Zodiac Killer is. One of the reasons they couldn't catch this guy is there was really no M.O. I mean, there was to a degree. Mm-hmm. But then he would just appear anywhere, you know? Um the scene, even the scene with with uh, with Don Wells, you know, Marianne from Gilligan's Island, yeah. um, <laughs> who was interesting uh, to to see. By the way, just so this is way off topic, but I've always been a Marianne. Uh, I've I was always Marianne over Ginger, really? as far as Gilligan's Island. Yeah, I'm, no I'm a Ginger about. man. Sorry. Really, Sorry. I'm not me. It was always Marianne. Yes, sir. Um, and I still think she looks. I saw an interview with her on the, on the, uh, on the Blu-ray. I still think she looks for her age. She still looks pretty darn good, mm-hmm. but see that there's that. And that was one of the things about, about Zodiac. I mean, Zodiac was just a great movie too. Incredible. Uh, and in a lot of, it was just, and I'm awesome. actually correct that Jason doesn't like that as well. Well, no, no, no. Well, we're going to fight about that a lot. I think on movie podcast weekly coming up soon. Okay. I like it, but I have some big problems with it. Ugh. Wow. That's <laughs> sorry. Um, but anyway, um, and I, that's sort of what this killer was. He would just, he sometimes would go into areas where you wouldn't expect him to be and do things that you weren't expecting. Um, and he does that a couple times in this movie. And, but what really, what really does get it for me is the, um, the performance of the guy under the mask. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy is clearly insane. Yeah. And all, and you get that just from his eyes and the mannerisms that he has. <laughs> you never see his face once, yet you know he's insane, and it's conveyed so well. And how did he do that? I mean, honestly, how how do his eyes look just nuts? That I, that's a good question. I don't know, but <laughs> don't he know. he did it. He really did it. So he did it that well. Where you and. You get it just from the eyes, yeah. You know, and the breathing, and the, the breathing, breathing. and his, I like his physicality to too. Actually, like when mm-hmm. he's like trying to hold on to the car, all that stuff is really cool looking. Good point. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, so that's Bud Davis, actually, um, the actor who plays the killer, the Phantom, is just right. the way that, what they call him in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done stunts 
ever since then, I mean, his last movie was Inglorious Bastards. Um, so the guy is working still. Oh. Um, he's been a stunt coordinator on Forrest Gump, Castaway, um, the Green Mile. So apparently, he, him he's good buddies with Tom Hanks. Um, uh-huh. But also Inglorious Bastards, um, Austin Powers, Contact, a lot of big movies. The guy is the guy is still working. Mm-hmm. The killer is still out there. Yeah, that's true. Yep, that's true. Right. <laughs> let's let's talk about the most infamous, maybe most famous scene, or one of the most famous at least, and that's the um, trombone kill. <laughs> now, that, you- see, that's a perfect <laughs> example of that. Is the worst idea <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen for a movie kill. Right, because in real life, the real life story. He doesn't actually do what he does. Now, do you, Josh, do you think it's permissible to discuss the trombone kill, even though it will spoil that kill or not? What do you want uh, to do? Well, you've already mentioned it. I think that alone is, an, is enough of a spoiler. Might as well just talk about it. I won't describe it, but the, the way that he sets that up to kill with... Oh, no, you, I, think, I think, I mean, I don't know, whatever. Okay, well, I mean, you could say trombone As, to kill. To me, the surprise is that there's a trombone kill at that point. <laughs> Let's just talk about it. <laughs> okay, well, what he does then is, is he ties a, a knife to this girl's trombone, and she's tied to a tree. Okay, and then he basically plays the tra- trombone, you know, where you extend that piece... I'm yeah. not a brass player myself, but anyway, he extends that piece and stabs her. And um, on one hand, this scene is disturbing because of the way he does it, because of how deliberate he is. His actual behavior while he's doing that freaky. is just really freaky to me. But the other thing is, it's a very impractical way to kill. Uh, it it kind of seems stupid on one hand. Yeah. Do, do you guys agree with that or not? Yeah, I do, but I think it was more what what he was going for with it, you know, just that whole sort of, I don't know, taking something that that she obviously holds very dear to her and using it against her, Mm -hmm. you you know, and I think that that was what he was doing. Yes, it's very impractical, but what he was actually trying to do with it was was what made it sort of freaky. Yeah. You know, that that he was taking this thing that that this, this girl was like her possession and using it to kill her. I fall favorably. I fall on the side of favorability to it. And and it's only because of his performance in the way that he pulls it off. It could have been really stupid, but it's pulled off in such a way that it's actually pretty disturbing. So So I'm going to go the other direction. I For me, I like the horror scenes in this movie. It's all the surrounding stuff that's the problem for me. Like every time the killer's on screen, I think the movie's scary. The first the lover's lane attack, I think, is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, the cornfield scene is super good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the scene where they're chasing him and there's a train, I love the way that's shot. I love everything about the way that's handled cinematically. It's just all that inter, you know, all the cop stuff that we've talked about, all the documentary stuff. That, to me, those are the weak parts, except the trombone scene, <laughs> which I just, I think just the fact that we have to sit there while he, like fastens it. I don't know, man. It's and and also he's blow it seems as though he's blowing through the bag, but there's no sound associated with the trombone. So that kind of annoys me. Like if there was a creepy like <laughs> I'm just joking. That would be that would be even worse. I don't know. I just don't I just don't like this as a killing instrument. I would say it's the stuff I don't like about <laughs> the killing instrument peeping Tom taken like even further. It just is a really awkward way to uh, <laughs> to dispatch of someone. But for the, other than this scene, I feel like 
the killer is really scary. It still um, it still cracks me up to call it a killing instrument in this yeah, instance. Yeah, exactly. I just love right. that so much. Any <laughs> <laughs> other thoughts on uh, the town, the dreaded sundown, before we yes close out? Okay. I just want to point out to people just with the Zodiac killer thing. I mean, he would prey upon people who were like you know hanging out on lovers' lanes. So there was that. He also wore the bag over his head. He was also, and this is I'm talking real life here. Also not discovered, but also, um, you know, in both instances, according to my research, people, you know, there's some people that are pretty sure they think they know who it was, you know, but, you know, he's never convicted. It was never proven for sure. And it's just, it's kind of eerie to me how many parallels there are between these two. And I mean, I could see maybe um, the Zodiac guy be, being inspired Maybe by this yeah. this killer, the, uh-huh. the the moonlight, what they call it, Texas moonlight killers or whatever, because because they had a few different names, of course, yeah. the media. But anyway, I could see the Zodiac being inspired, but the way that it all unfolded after that was, um, I don't know, it's kind of eerie to me. It reminds me well, of the you know the parallels of the Kennedy assassination and the Lincoln assassination. It reminds me a little bit of that stuff. Yeah. Huh. That's all I had to say about that. Okay. Right. What about you, Doc? Anything else to add? No, I, I think I've pretty much said it all um, so far. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, that they never did find the killer. Uh, they never did, you know, prosecute anybody. Um, but what is that movie? I think Seven Psychopaths offers a scene where they kind of tie things up here. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever seen Seven Psychopaths. Yes. No, I haven't um, seen it. There is, there's a scene where they, um, these two characters who are sort of righting the wrongs done by others um, sort of tie this together that I thought was pretty clever. I actually saw that after seeing this movie. Um, so, uh, um, you know, I kind of like that. But that's, that, again, that's just an aside here. Uh, no, I, I honestly like this. And oh, well, something else on the Blu-ray, if uh, if anyone does decide to pick it up, um, our friend Justin Beam uh, conducts the audio commentary. Oh yeah, it's it's actually with a gentleman who was alive during that time, and he talks more about the facts of the case and the town itself and the layout and how it relates to what actually what's shown in the movie more than he does the movie. Uh, it's more of a of a like um, a fact driven commentary on the on the real life events than it is the movie itself, uh, and it's very interesting. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's about uh, all I have uh, for it at this point. All right. Well, I'll just um. Well, well, let's go around and and give our ratings for it then, and then I'll I'll give my final kind of thoughts then. Okay. Jay, do you want to go for it one more time? One last time? Man, you keep making me go first. Why you do that? <laughs> um, it feels, just feels right. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> Honestly, because of the strength of the look of the killer and his performance and the eyes, I mean, that that takes this movie a long way for me. I do love the poster art, too. I love, I think it's freaky that it's based on a true story. So, I mean, and for that, I give it a 5 out of 10. And I say it's a, a rental. Cool. Okay. Doc? Um, I agree with Jay about the killer, definitely. Uh, I did like the documentary scenes. I thought it kind of gave it almost like a, a down-home feel, almost like, like The Legend of Boggy Creek had. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I like that about it. Um, 
I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I'm a fan of Ben Johnson. I know he's not always the best actor. I know I've seen him give some bad performances, especially in the in the uh, TV movie. What was that? The Savage Bees. Um, he was really bad in that. Mm. But I, I'm a fan of Ben Johnson. Um, yeah, me too. And I like uh, Andrew Prine too. And Andrew Prine as well. I thought both of them were believable in this there, movie. Most people have seen them in, in uh, Westerns, but I like seeing right. them kind of transplanted. It gives this movie kind of an interesting kind of Western feel to it. Absolutely. Um, and with all those things, and especially for the killer, uh, I'm actually going to give it a seven and a half. Now, I am going to say it's a rental. I don't know. It's one that you're going to want to rush out and buy. Um, but, you know, keep. Uh, I think it's, it's one that I th- some people are going to want to, uh, want to purchase. Um, but I'm going to say, and I'm going to say it's a high priority rental. If you haven't seen it, I do think it's, it's worth checking out, you know, for, for, for the reasons I mentioned, but definitely for, um, you know, the performance of Bud Davis as the killer. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little bit lower than you guys, I think. Um, here, it's, I have kind of mixed feelings about the movie because I feel like of all the movies we've talked about tonight, it's kind of the least watchable um, huh. just on its own terms. I feel like all the other movies are better movies, you know? I feel like... Um, and I, you know, like I said, I feel like Torso is kind of extremely watchable as a slasher fan, and I feel like this is less so. Um, the, the the killer scenes are scary, but I think the for me the focus here is kind of put on that documentary feel, and maybe fans of Pierce will appreciate that. If you're a big Bog, Boggy Creek fan or something, you might might like that. And I, and I and it's not that I hate it. Um, I like the tone that it gives the movie. I just feel like there are a lot of things in this movie that take me out of it. And that voiceover is part of it. The comedy scenes are part of it. And so as much as I try to want to get into the the vibe of this movie, I, I just kind of keep getting sucked out. And that 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 bothers me um, as I watch the film. It looks really good, which is shocking on the budget. Um, and again, it's not necessarily the camera moves or, or angles, but it just it's beautiful to look at on this Blu-ray. And, and maybe that's a reason to buy it right there just to get the – the Shout Factory or is it Scream Factory Blu-ray. Um, uh-huh. Justin Beam would be a good reason to buy it to support friends of the show. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's I, I would probably give it a five, and I would call it a low priority rental for most people, uh, for most slasher fans. I think that's you know the context within which we're talking about these movies. As a proto slasher of the films we've talked about, I feel like it l- lends the least to the genre in terms of an influence. And it's the least watchable by fans of slasher movies. Um, I would, but I would say, for kind of again cinephiles and collectors, it, it, it's a film that you wouldn't hate to have bought. And again, the Blu-ray is so so well made and put together right. that it's it's worth having around for that reason. Um, Agreed. Okay, well that's kind of uh, the ends of the movies we're discussing. Um, let's. One thing we wanted to do was go through and each of us recommend three proto slashers that if someone was going to only be able to watch three of these ever, um, which ones the three of us would recommend. Um, I'm interested in, uh, in throwing out just a couple of names. And if you guys want to do that as well, or if you want to wait, that's fine. Um, there were a lot of movies that I feel like kind of fall into this area, this kind of gray area, you know, pre, Black Christmas, pre-Halloween, 
um, pre, you know, the kind of 80s invention of the term slasher that still fit the mold and probably influenced the genre. So I'm going to go through, go ahead and name some of those. Homicidal is one that came up a lot on lists. I haven't seen it. I've heard it's almost a bit of a spoof on Hitchcock, so I'm not sure if it's a comedy or, or how that, you know, exactly what type of film that is, but it's one that people definitely mentioned a lot. Fright um, is another one I haven't seen, but came up on a lot of lists and looked terrifying from 1972. It looks really scary, actually. 13 Women is one that comes up on a lot of lists. It's one that I didn't particularly care for. It's a David O. Selznick production, and I don't really feel like it fits the slasher genre myself, but um, it's one that a lot of people refer to as a, as a proto-slasher. Uh, Dementia 13 that I mentioned, which is directed by Francis Ford Coppola, produced by Roger Corman. It's a pretty decent entry, um, stronger than some of those that I've mentioned so far, but I don't think it's a better entry than any of the ones we talked about tonight, which is why it didn't get chosen. Uh, the Leopard Man is one. Silent Night, Bloody Night would be one. Uh, Savage Weekend, Alice, Sweet Alice. And, of course, the ones we talked about tonight. And my three, you know, since I picked the movies, my three all happen to be one of the ones we discussed tonight. Um, it would be Hitchcock's Psycho, which I think is the most influential of those would be my number uh, three pick. My number two would be um, Peeping Tom because I feel like less people have probably seen that than Psycho and people should go out and, and give it a try and and see all the interesting things that kind of influenced uh, the slasher genre that came from that picture, which may be the first legitimate one. If I had to pick one, as my, the one I would say is the first, I'd probably say Peeping Tom. Um but then my favorite that I'm going to put at number one is Torso because I think it's the most like a slasher. And I think uh, there's no – for me, it's clear that Giallo's were the biggest influence on the slasher genre. And although they were also in turn influenced by Psycho, I feel like they're more directly influenced on the modern slasher or the 80s slasher. And so – and Torso is kind of one of my favorites of those. So oh, that's oh, my uh, that would be my All list right. there. Very good. Well, Doc, do you want to go next and Jason can end it? Yeah, that 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 sounds good. <laughs> we'll go in reverse we order. Do here. that. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, all right, the three I have. One, we the first one we already talked about is M from 1931. Uh, you know, you, you have the tortured killer in that yeah. um, with a specific uh, group. Uh, what my probably though my favorite part of that movie is is the the fact that you have two two sides of the two sides of the law going after it's not even the law you have the law and the criminals both trying to find this guy at the same time that's awesome you know and and the fact that for his sake you kind of hope the law finds him first <laughs> um which is not how it how, how it turns out but uh just a very well-made movie fritz lang um you know peter laurie and what i think is is probably i mean he made a lot of great movies when he came to hollywood and was really good but this for me is his strongest performance mm-hmm. um uh number two actually is is one that i saw come up on a few lists as well it's and I thought about it. I said, yeah, that kind of works. It's uh, Vincent Price's House of Wax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get a killer. He, he has a deformity. He has a backstory that sort of uh, changed his outlook. He has a mask. Um, and he has a very specific way of, of doing away with his victims uh, for a very specific purpose. So I think that fits in a way 
um, you know, into the uh, into the proto slasher. Uh, it's a stretch a bit, but I do think it fits in there. I see it. Yeah. And uh, my third movie is actually another Hitchcock film, a later movie called Frenzy. Um, you know, one yeah. of his last next to last movie that he made. It's the only R-rated movie Alfred Hitchcock ever directed. Um, you have a killer. He has a specialized weapon. He's the necktie killer uh, going after women. You know, so you get that body count in there. Um, a very disturbing scene where the killer is alone with this woman and just he just says over and over, lovely. Uh, it's it's really <laughs> creepy, um, and it even has one of uh, one of Hitchcock's uh, you know uh, uh, it has Hitchcock's famous uh, wrong you know wrongly accused uh, man it even has that angle in it, which is something Hitchcock returned to a lot. Nice again um, that psychosexual kind of. That's right. Yes, it has that as well. Features. It has it has that as well. So um, yep, those are my three. Nice. Very good. Awesome. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, and, and to run down the list, other ones that I found in my research, too, and by the way, I want to just give a shout-out to horror-movies.ca. I like their site, and I tell you, when I end up, like, you know, looking around on the internet, I usually end up on their site, and they kind of do what we do on the podcast, except they do it less in-depth, as far as I can tell, and they have it written, you know, they write out their stuff, like right. blog posts, but it's a pretty cool site. Anyway... Um, the Student of Prague from 1913 came up, German film, and I guess that's supposed to be cinema's first instance of like someone with a split personality, kind of like oh. Norman Bates. And not all of these I agree with 100%, but like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is cited. Yeah, I saw that, and I couldn't really figure that one out myself either. Yeah, I mean, I no, I really don't agree with that one 100%, but um, because uh, Caesar, the sleepwalker, the... Somnambulist. How do you say that? Somnambulist. I don't know. Somnambulist. Something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Yeah. Meaning sleepwalker. He's a killer and stuff. And he's got this kind of freaky costume. But I don't know. I think that's a stretch. It's it's so expressionist. Right. You know, in in the way that it's put together and told, I, I would have a hard time fitting that in there as well. And then there's one. That's a Boris Karloff film from 1940, Before I Hang where he injects himself with a murderer's blood and it makes him kill. It's another kind of split personality type thing. And then there's one called, and then there were none from 1945, which you mentioned earlier, I believe it's eight strangers on an isolated Island and they die kind of one at a time. Um, Somebody mentioned rope in there and I just don't see that for this. No, Although it is a great film. It is. I don't see it. I don't really see it either. I think Mm-mm. it may be in the way that it opens. It opens with a kill. That would be the only thing that <laughs> right. I could. That would, and that's a big stretch to even to even yeah put it in there for that. So after that, it's it's completely dialogue driven, but still, like you said, an excellent movie. Excellent movie. People should watch it anyway. Not not really horror, but anyway. Yeah, and I saw House of Wax Ducks, so that that was a good pick. And I've saw I've seen people cite Bucket of Blood from 1959, but I've never seen it. The more I read about it, I didn't make the connection on that either. But. I don't think so. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I get why they would say that, but yeah, um, just because you know you've got this, you you have a psycho killer, but it's no, it's yeah. not a slasher by any stretch of the imagination, in my opinion. But. Right. So what I did end up going with is, um. Number one I picked was um, Alfred Hitchcock's movie from 1927, The Lodger. Oh, that one won't work. Yeah. Now, now um, 
because because that one's kind of a a variation on Jack the Ripper. It was I guess it was Hitchcock's third film, I think. And it was it's this serial killer, which as Josh mentioned, they weren't really called that back then. But right. um, he targets young blondes and was kind of inspired by Jack the Ripper. Now, Doc saw and reviewed the 1944 version of The Lodger, and that was highly celebrated on episode 22 of the weekly horror movie podcast, right? Yes. Yes, it was. That's an excellent, excellent version of the story. But I'll tell you what, Hitchcock's is as well, because you really see him sort of cutting his teeth with – uh, just with with his um, with his style and 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 the the way he put it together. I mean, there's a really interesting scene where, you know, the lodger is upstairs pacing the floor, and this is a silent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but you get that look of it. He uses a glass floor to show it, and then he shows the people down below, sort of listening to what's going on up above. And um, you know, he he he. It was just really interesting the way he put it together. And he actually thinks of The Lodger as, you're right, it was like his third or whatever. I'm not sure how many, I think it was, you know, third movie. But he considers it, considers it his first true, his first true movie, his first true Hitchcock style movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, like, um, you know, I was saying a lot of these slasher and early slashers were based on real serial killers. And Jack the Ripper is a popular uh, person to to base these films yeah. on and, and really probably is our first <clears throat> slasher that, you know, a lot of us had ever heard about. Um, but the hands of the Ripper from 1971 is a film that's often brought up as a, as a very early slasher. So that's another Jack the Ripper inspired film. Funny, funny. You should say that about Jack the Ripper. Cause that's exactly where I was going, Josh. So my number two was um, psycho from 1960. So another Alfred Hitchcock. So two of my, three proto slashers that I'm recommending that people see if they only want to see three, you know, to learn about this. Two of those were from Hitchcock. And so I'm going to say some kind of, uh, you know, controversial maybe, but to me, I think Alfred Hitchcock is the father of the proto slasher film and therefore maybe even the father of the slasher subgenre. And so since, since there are definitely people that consider psycho, the most important proto slasher. So I don't think you're far off and, Right. Can, you know, add to that the lodger and as Doc said, Frenzy. There's a lot of interesting uh and, and, and the fact that Vertigo was an influence on right. Peeping Tom. I think there are a lot there's, there's a lot of evidence to support there's, that. There's just a darkness that runs through Hitchcock's best works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, even even rear window, if you think about that, we're we're basically associating with a character who is spying on his neighbors. Yeah. You know, he is watching them through their open windows and gets to know their routines. Exactly. (laughs) Gets to know their routines um, by what they do. I mean, yes, he eventually uses it to catch a murderer, but still there's there's that whole sort of moral dilemma with with the film. Um, You know, and and a lot of that is Hitchcock has that darkness. And I think that that it lent itself. And the two movies you mentioned so far are are definitely – uh, you know, besides being proto slashers, they just have that that darkness to them. Yeah, thank you. And so, since Alfred Hitchcock is well, I would consider him the father of the proto slasher film. And since he was apparently inspired by Jack the Ripper, I was going to say in a, a very real way, just like Josh just said, I think Jack the Ripper may actually be the genesis or the inception of the slasher flick because he inspired the father of the subgenre in my book. So yeah. that's kind of crazy to think yeah, about. But, uh, yep. but my number three is um, Peeping Tom from 1960. And so um, for certain, I mean, that is 
it's interesting that that is released right along like the same year as Psycho because those are kind of peas in a pod. It's it's mm. fascinating how similar they are. And um, anyway, that's I, yeah, very interesting. Definite must see. But but Josh, Actually, go ahead, Doc. Um, so I, real quick, I was just going to throw this out there. Something I meant to mention um, when we were talking about Psycho, and it's not. I wouldn't call this a proto slasher. But um, the, one of the reasons Hitchcock ended up making Psycho, I mean, there's always different talks about why he did it. He actually was trying to get the rights to um, the movie that w- became Diabolique. You know, yeah. Henri Georges Closet's yeah. uh, Diabolique. Yeah. He actually was hours late, just a few hours late from purchasing the rights to make that. Um, and he was inspired. There was a, the, the, the main scene in, in, in Psycho was supposedly inspired by a scene from that movie that takes place in a bathtub that is right. really, really good. I, I love that movie, too. Yeah, I haven't seen it in years, but it's I great. haven't seen it in years either. Now, I wouldn't call it a proto-slasher. I don't really no. think it's that. But um, Very it's, psychologically driven. It's very psychological. And I think if you enjoy Psycho and, and Peeping Tom, that, that um, Diabolique is one uh, from 55 or 50. It's in the late, mid to late 50s. I can't not 55, but mid to late 50s is definitely one that I think um, you're going to enjoy as well. So then my French class in seventh grade. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. For extra credit. <laughs> nice. So, so- nice. So, Josh, I have um, kind of a final thought about the proto slasher. Yeah, and 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 uh, and then I had a final question for you guys, if you don't mind. There's just uh-huh. one other random bit of trivia that I forgot to mention oh, when we were re- uh, reviewing the town that dreaded sundown. It was those boots. Um, I was talking about how I thought maybe the police um, inspired Dewey and Scream. Definitely the killer's boots. Seeing them, not knowing who the killer is, knowing he's around town. And they almost nearly the exact same boots as the boots in Scream. Um, that clearly was lifted from there mm-hmm. as an inspiration. Um, but I just yeah. wanted to mention that. And even nice. seeing the killer boots, you know, the killer shoes or feet—that's another kind of yeah. slasher thing around town. Absolutely. Okay. Anyway, sorry. No, I was just gonna say. So, listeners may not be aware of how we do this, but when at least the way I do it, when we do these themed episodes, we do a lot of. We do some study. We watch the movies. But for me, the most of it I do to prepare for these kind of shows is I think about stuff a lot. I mean, I try to actually ponder the stuff we're going to be talking about. And so (laughs) this is probably obvious to everyone else. But it occurs to me that the slasher film as a subgenre is really just an amalgam or a combination of other genres and subgenres. And so I would suggest that what we recognize today as the slasher film comes from the mystery film, especially murder mysteries, obviously, uh-huh. the serial killer crime film, and then um, splatter films, a.k.a. gore films, some people call it that, and of course, just general horror film. And so if you combine all of those elements together, then you have a recipe for a slasher film. And I think that's interesting. And so I guess yeah. as, as my second PSA of the night. Do you add superhero film? Because I think <laughs> that may come into play as well. That, uh, well, I would consider those supernatural beings as just the supernatural part of, you know, horror. I okay. guess. I guess. <laughs> but that's funny, Josh. But, <laughs> but my second PSA of the evening is I know that myself included, we horror fans sometimes get uptight about genre bending or genre blending, but here it is, one of our favorite subgenres in horror, the slasher film, and it comes from this very thing. So I think 
that we owe, you know, we slasher fans, and I know that we're all slasher fans here, we owe a debt to the proto-slashers because within about a span of like 20 years, really, if you ask me, because I, I really think that even though these other films, these older ones we've mentioned were significant, maybe noteworthy, I think that it really started in 1960 with Peeping Tom and Psycho, and in that 20 years, it really developed into what we know and love today. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and most of it, most of the big developments happened in about 10 years, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well said. By now, the time you get, by the time you get to the mid 70s, you really have films like an Alice Sweet Alice, uh, you know, that's really feels like a slasher film. Yeah, I mean, I I consider Alice Sweet Alice full-blown slasher. So does that mean it's the first slasher in your opinion? Well, that was my next question. I was going to ask you guys, what do you think is officially the first like full-blown slasher film not proto slasher but real slasher i mean i think most people would say black christmas mm-hmm. and i feel like that's a very solid pick uh-huh. um, yeah. but i don't know there part there's part of me that just feels like if we're really talking about what made it into a genre i don't i think halloween kind of has to be the the choice because that's what, what i think you know you talk about all that genre bending or blending, uh, you know, leading up to it. To me, it was it's the success of Halloween. Actually, yeah, that that's that it. really turns it into something that people want to copy, and and uh, you know, and obviously again that had been done in the Giallo's for quite a while, but to to bring it to America and have a big hit that all of a sudden was going to be copied over and over and over again. Um, yeah. And also again, the fact that there are what where are we at right now? Eight Halloween movies, and there's. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a uh, one Black Christmas, so right. know, to me or that that says two Black Christmas. Christmas they remade it, but oh, yes, okay. there's only yes. the story right. itself right. was only right. yeah, but it didn't it didn't spawn sequels, just a remake. Um, and I absolutely agree with Josh 100. Uh, percent I Black Christmas has a lot of the a lot of you know the the slasher conventions, the the first person, the you know the the the, the mysterious killer. Um, you know, the, the victims all being women, um, there's a lot of that going on in Black Christmas, but you don't spawn a subgenre without success. And Halloween was that success. So if, if you're looking at the one movie that launched it, it's got to be Halloween um, because it was, it was as popular as it was. Uh, obviously, it's a great movie anyway, um, but it's the one that really... People wanted to. People cop, studios copied it because they wanted that success. They yeah. wanted to make the money that Halloween made, uh, and so the, Halloween has to be. So they had to use that as the formula, right? Exactly. They they had to use that and you know take it to different areas, different you know like into the woods or or whatever. Different um, holidays. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, we got a lot of that at the beginning there too. So for me, it's it has to be it has to be Halloween. All right, you guys, so everybody's going to kill me. I mean, I, I agree. I agree that Halloween is the first successful um, launching of the slasher genre as far as a, a franchise. Like, I think everything you said is accurate, both of you. I really do. But really what I'm looking for is technically what is the first film that we, th- I mean, for me, this is just my question to me, I guess. What is the first film that is a slasher as we recognize slashers today? 
And and I think um, Black Christmas is a good contender. But yeah, for me, it's Alice, Sweet Alice because from 1976, because that is like the whole package of everything that we recognize a slasher to be. And that's what that movie is. Well, Black Christmas is too, and it came first. Well, I, I still see it as more of a, honestly, I, I don't think, and uh, this is controversial, I, I don't think that Black Christmas has, um, see, part of it is, I, I don't want to talk about spoilers, but I don't think it has everything that Alice Sweet Alice has, at least. I mean, it, it is, I was torn, it's kind of a, it's kind of a toss-up. But if I were to lean on one, I think Alice Sweet Alice looks more like Halloween and Friday the 13th than Black Christmas does, personally. I would say if you're going to go that far back again, I think you're getting into giallos that probably predate Alice Sweet Alice that have those elements that you're thinking of. Maybe. Maybe so. Yeah, uh-huh. so, well, I guess I'll keep, I'll keep my mind open on it, but I guess I just can't emphasize enough how much people should see Alice Sweet Alice. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't even make your top three. <laughs> well, because I think it's a full-blown slasher and not okay. a proto-slasher. So, in other words, this this question was really designed so that you could talk about Alice Sweet Alice. Yeah, I just wanted to plug that movie <laughs> and beg people out there to watch it. Just like that movie Inside, this is my other one that I love to champion. So, please. I, I actually, and I think I mentioned this last episode, but I really strongly considered Alice Sweet Alice as the fourth film, but um, yeah. you'd already covered it, so I... I wanted to um, on Horror Metropolis, so I wanted to try the Town of the Dreaded Sundown. But well done, and and I want to say, Josh, I want to compliment you on your four picks. I think they're yes. excellent at illustrating the proto slasher. So, and I think some of the ones you were thinking of too. I thought it might have been real interesting to to uh, to look at Dementia Thirteen. That could have yeah. been a lot of fun to look at too. But I think that the four you chose were. Were were excellent, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested in in checking out uh, or doing something on Dementia 13 in the future. So maybe we could take a look at the the horror the the horror films of famous directors at some point. That would be cool. Nice. In oh, fact, man. my next my next specialty theme, like it's Doc's uh-huh. turn next to pick, of course, and then when it's my turn again. I've got my theme is focused around a director, and it's not the one I mentioned a couple months ago. Okay. This is outside the box, guys. I cannot well, wait. It's gonna be wow. fun, man. Okay. I, I've already, I already know what my next one is too, and I'm pretty excited about it. Okay, well, we're monster, getting... monster related, so nice. and not the monster I mentioned previously. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks. All right, hey Dave, do you know what our next theme is? You know something? I'm I'm going to have to think about it for a little bit. Okay, I, I don't know because I've had. It's funny, I've had like a, a, like eight, nine, ten ideas, and I'm trying to think which is the best one to settle on here. Such a uh, so teaser. I so I don't know. But I'm not disappointing our... us, Dave. No, I won't. <laughs> no, I won't. Yeah, you'll do good. <laughs> but we're we're gonna have to. Um, uh, that's not gonna be our next episode anyway, right? I don't know. I mean, it depends on how how soon we could throw it together. But we'll. You can let us know. Okay. No pressure. I will. Uh, I will get back to you guys uh, within a day. Or so of what the well, thing is. I, I want to thank you guys for taking this uh, selection of mine seriously. I thought it's a, I think it's a fun discussion for me as being not only a horror fan but just a cinema lover, which I know all three of us are. So mm-hmm. I, I thought it was fun to dig, push ourselves outside the box and dig a little deeper. And I, I hope yeah. our fan, I hope our listeners appreciate some of this discussion as well. I had a 
really great time watching these movies and a great time talking about them with you guys. So, uh, yeah, I think um, there definitely is something special, I think, about the theme episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and I think this one ranks right up there with um, the uh, as one of the best. So Absolutely. Cool. Yep, had a lot of fun. Yeah, well done, Josh. Good pick. Director Martin Scorsese. He got Peeping Tom into the 1979 New York Film Festival and helped fund its re-release. Uh, the vice president of Warner Brothers became a friend of mine, Freddie Weintraub. And so he said he wanted to do a remake of this movie he heard about, in which a, a man uh, photographs the, the victims he kills, etc. And it was a man named Phil Chamberlain in, in Hollywood. He had the only print in America. And it was sort of uh, almost like the Holy Grail, in a way, to see this film. And we screened it at Warner Brothers, I remember, because Freddie wanted to do a remake. And when the lights came up, We've seen it for the first time. The print was kind of fading, but that was the only print, 35 millimeter. Uh, Freddie, to his credit, said, can't top that. And that was it. Because the talk was remaking it constantly. Sure. They heard about it. We all heard about it. We never saw it. But it's a great idea, we thought. The idea of the, the, com- the compulsion of cinema, the obsession of cinema, and um, the danger, the danger of gazing. See, the other problem with the film at the time, probably, was that you have this... Serial killer, basically, is horrible. Yet, he's presented um, as someone who's very, who touches you in a way. From the very beginning, something about his eyes and his quietness, especially when he photographs those models. It's a kind of uneasy um, empathy with this person. On the surface, it may not be as shocking, uh, but the, uh, and that is visually, um, because of the nature of uh, the, the graphic nature of the way films are made today. But that was never that way anyway. It was never a graphic film. Um, and I think um, it speaks directly now to the world we're in, um, the morbid urge to gaze. YouTube. Every, every place we go, apparently there's a, a problem here about uh, cameras in the streets. Surveillance cameras. Everybody. We're all being gazed upon. <laughs> so, and here we are. The, it's like an invasion of who we are as human beings. It's actually more relevant today than when, than when it came out. All right, this is Jay of the Dead coming at you. If I sound a little quiet like some kind of weirdo, it's because I'm recording this at 4 o'clock in the morning. But I'm here to bring you our feature review of The Purge, Anarchy. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about the first Purge movie, which is called The Purge. It's from 2013, so it's just a year old. I wanted to give you a little bit of background and some context in case you haven't seen the first movie. Now, the first Purge movie was released in June of 2013. It stars Ethan Hawke and was written and directed by James DeMonico, the guy who wrote Skinwalkers, if you remember that flick. And the first Purge is set in the United States in the year 2022, where unemployment is down to 1% and the crime rate is at an all-time low. How is this possible, you might wonder? Well, the whole country gets a 12-hour period one night per year in March when police and other emergency services are suspended so people can commit any crime they want, including murder, without any legal repercussions. So citizens are permitted and even encouraged to, as they say in the movie, release the beast and purge their internal predisposition toward violence as a means of catharsis to release their pent-up aggression, violence, and hatred. Now, I personally don't think this is necessary because you just record horror podcasts in the middle of the night and then that takes the fight out of you for the next day. 
Anyway, there are two kinds of people on the night of the purge. And there are those who hunt and those who hide, okay? And in this way, crime is managed and contained, according to the movie. And people are said to have a right to purge. And this movie claims that the annual purge has saved the United States. And so, because of all the good that the purge does for society, it is considered a necessary evil. And by the way, this first movie, what we're witnessing is actually the fifth year since the purge was put into place. So, the first film has the fifth annual purge, and I'll talk about the next one in a minute. But there are two rules associated with the purge. Weapons have to be class 4 or lower, so they can't break out any nuclear weapons or anything like that. And the higher level government officials are immune to the purge. Also, the purge ends the next morning at 7 a.m., so everything goes back to normal at that point. So why am I talking about the first film so much? Well, because I would definitely classify the first purge movie just the one from last year, I would call it a horror movie. It's not for the faint at heart. You know, for the average viewer, it gets pretty dark and pretty raw at times. It's it's a normal horror movie for <laughs> horror fans out there like you guys and girls. And while this is um, a home invasion movie, it's not as good or as scary as The Strangers, but it's still pretty effective siege narrative as far as that goes. Now, it is interesting... Even though the first Purge has horror in it, I considered it to be one of the better anti-war films that I've seen, and it has no war footage in it at all, at least in the traditional sense. And the first movie is a critique on America's war policies and just our general attitudes toward violence. So it's got a lot of that underlying commentary like I was talking with Willis about in our previous episode. But my critiques of that first film were that even though crime is legal, there are very few other crimes like looting or robbery or, you know, sexual crimes that are depicted or even mentioned in the movie. They only seem to focus on violence and inflicting death on other human beings. And I think The Purge would actually be a lot more than that for people. I think people would be <laughs> dipping into all sorts of dark behaviors. But And my other problems were... People, just the, the normal people, the, the hiders, just weren't nervous or careful enough. They would wait for the last moments to lock down their houses. And I think there's no way that people would do that. People would lock themselves in hours in advance. So that was a little bit un, unrealistic to me. And though all the violence is supposed to end at 7 a.m. the next morning, there would surely be retribution and retaliation. Like if somebody... You did something to someone you love. It's like when the 7 a.m. whistle blows, you're not going to just let it go. So I think the next day or the, you know, <laughs> the following weeks after the purge, I think there would be illegal purging. But overall, I really liked the first film. I rated it a 7 out of 10, and I called it a rental, definite rental. It's a strong rental. And yes, that rating is for you horror fans. And so one year later, here we are. And that's one year later in story time and in real time. And we get the sequel, The Purge, Anarchy. And this second movie shows us the sixth annual purge. So it's the year 2023. 
Here's the trailer. You can't go out there. You know how dangerous it is. This won't bring him back. It won't make you feel any better. Don't do this. It's late. You need to leave. Traffic is building rapidly downtown. As citizens rush to get home before commencement. If you're not purging, we advise you to get off the streets as quickly as possible. It'll soon be a war out there. Okay, the first thing I want you to know is, right off the bat, that I agree with what Willis said last week in our previous episode. The Purge Anarchy is not a horror movie. (laughs) Not at all. The first one was a horror flick, which is why I wanted to cover the sequel on this show. But this second one is not a horror film, even though it tries to give us a few jump scares. The Purge Anarchy is an action movie first, thriller second, suspense film, and it's also kind of a dark drama, and I mean dark in tone. And, you know, I think the average viewer would probably view it as like a a sicko movie, like a sick film. But for horror fans, it's very mild, and it's more of an action movie. So because it's not a horror movie, I'm not going to spend a ton of time reviewing it here. And I was actually just trying to sell the first one to you. So, But if you'd like to hear a more in-depth review of The Purge Anarchy, by the way, we're going to do a, a full-blown review of it on Movie Podcast Weekly, episode 95. Anyway, so this sequel was also written and directed by the same guy, James DeMonico. And for this movie, we get a whole new cast of characters because it's not about a particular individual or group of people in the Purge movies. These Purge movies are about how people behave and interact during the Purge. And so the Purge Knight itself is the recurring character, and it's not really about the actors or the people they're playing. But this film stars Frank Grillo, or maybe he pronounces it Grillo. I'm pretty sure it's Grillo. And you'll know him when you see him. It also has Zach Guilford and Kylie Sanchez. And if you don't recognize their names, trust me, you'll recognize them on screen. And by the way, you also get a small role here from Michael K. Williams, who played Omar on The Wire. And then, like I said, it's a small role, but it's an important part. And weirdly enough, I think that's our second mention of Omar from The Wire during this episode. (laughs) And as Willis said in our previous show, we get to see some various things happening all around the city this time, and it's not just one house under siege like it was in the first movie. So I agree with Willis there. That is kind of interesting. But in this movie, you've got um, a small cast of characters. You've got a bereaved father who's planning revenge for the wrongful death of his son, and that's not a spoiler. You can figure that out in, in the way they frame the very first scene. And that's very interesting. He's the most interesting character. And that's the, the end of the plot line that I, I was most excited to see it play out. And then you've got a young couple with relationship issues. And they get stranded in the city streets after the commencement has begun. Now the commencement is the start of the purge. And then you get this mother and her daughter who also end up, unfortunately, not not according to their own fault or their own plans, but they end up being victims who are caught out 
on the run during the purge. And then you have a few other supporting characters, but this is our core group of people that we follow during the night. Now, this is no spoiler. This is just the gist of the movie. So you got the couple who are struggling and the mother and daughter, and they get stuck out during the purge out in the city. And basically, they're protected and led by this vengeful father played by Frank Grillo. And he's really good with guns, and he was planning to be out at night anyway because he's prepared to do some purging himself. So in this movie, we have we actually have a hero type of character who's more of an anti-hero since he's out there to purge and he's bent on revenge. And so as we follow this this character, this group of characters, we get to watch all of their perilous travels as he tries to protect this little group, you know, that he's acquired this group of strays. <laughs> And so this movie has a lot in common with The Running Man, that Schwarzenegger film. It reminded me a lot of that, actually. And also a film called Judgment Night, which probably not many people have seen from the 90s. Neither of those is a horror movie, but still um, reminds me of that. Anyway, overall, The Purge Anarchy is an entertaining movie, you know, especially if you like action flicks. It still tries to make some political and moral statements. Um, but I had three guys sitting near me who were laughing, you know, like like it was funny or something <laughs> during the depictions of human suffering. So to be honest with you, I worry that these messages are lost on most of the intended audience for a movie like this. But still, I'd call it a very dark film. And at times it is suspenseful and maybe even just a, a touch scary, but not in a horror movie way. Anyway, I'm rating The Purge Anarchy. I'm coming in lower than I did for the first film. But I still give it a 6.5 out of 10. I'd call it a rental, as long as you don't expect it to be a horror movie. And one last thing about these Purge movies. You might wonder if this ends open-ended with a possibility of another sequel. And, you know, cleverly, that's kind of the way they have these stories designed when... when You know, like I said, it's about the night itself. And so the society's reaction to the purge is really the franchise here. And it's not about the individual characters. So um, I guess in a sense, they could probably go on forever with these movies, but I hope they don't. I'm actually kind of done with the purge concept, to be honest with you. As much as I like the movies, you, you could call this good. But if they must... If, you know, give us a third film to finish out a trilogy, then I think they should wrap it up with the, um, you know, the fall of the annual purge. Because in both movies, the purge as a policy has its own critics, especially in this new movie. And so if they do a third flick, I think it would be cool if they would address the taking down of the purge. But even if they do that, I hope it's truly their final film. Okay, and that's my review of The Purge Anarchy. Now let's wrap up the show. All right, well, that just about wraps up episode 21 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. I want to thank um, all my buddies for being here tonight, and I want to just go kick it around and see what our plugs are for the evening. What do you got, Dr. Shock? Well, my plugs are pretty much the same as always. Um, you know, check check me out on Land of the Creeps, my other the other podcast I'm a part of with Greg Amortis and 
and Haddonfield Hatchet. Um, uh, that's over at landofthecreeps.com. Definitely go out to the blog, dvdinfatuation.com. Um, still going strong with, with the uh, posting a movie a day over there. I think I'm at 1431 now, so I'm kind of closing in on the 1500 mark. Nice. Yeah, so uh, that'll be the next big, um, I guess, milestone. And, awesome. Um, oh, thank you. And uh, definitely check out uh, Twitter, DV, uh, at uh, DVD Infatuation, all one word, all together. Um, you know, I, I post uh, trivia tweets uh, all the time throughout the, you know, throughout the day. Yeah, and, and leave comments on the message board. You know, I'm, I'm always checking those out. I don't always respond. It's like my comments, too. And I wanted to thank both Juan and David, who have been uh, leaving excellent comments over on the blog. Uh, again, I'm, I'm absolutely terrible with responding to them, and I apologize for that, but I did read them, and uh, I thought they were, they were uh, tremendous, and I thank you for those. Um, and uh, the ones on the message board as well, I think we've got a great community here, and I'm just continually impressed uh, with what people bring to the table uh, you know, in the message board. To keep it in perspective, all three of us are busy, but Doc is going to sleep two hours tonight and go to work. So he's probably the most busy of the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> At least today. Maybe today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks, Doc, for all your yep. efforts. All right, Wolfman, what do you got for us for plugs? All right. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter at Icarus Arts. Appreciate everybody over there who is uh, getting in touch. We get some great comments from our listeners. Um from time to time, uh, Peter from over at ForgottenFlicks.com, who does some awesome retro reviews over there, um, sent me some cool tweets this week. And again, as usual, Chris Excess and uh, Chantel's Geekery again. Um, so thanks, everybody, for, for being in touch over there and for the Follow Fridays and all that stuff. I really appreciate it. Um, One Sick Puppy and, and all you guys, uh, Dan of the Dead. Thank you. Shout outs to everybody. Um, and thanks for all the awesome comments on the on the website as well. Um, some of you guys are so great, uh, like David, with your super long responses. That's like I'm traveling so much and I'm responding like on my phone, and so it's just like I see David's excellent comment, and I don't have a moment that I can like sit down and text like a legitimate response to such a good comment. So I'm the same. I, I apologize. I, I do my best to respond and, and uh, we'll stay on top of that. We have really have some excellent commenters on the website. So thanks guys mm-hmm. for that as well. And uh, check Jason and I out at moviepodcastweekly.com. If you need some more of us talking in your head mm-hmm. and um, also have some episodes coming up of movie streamcast. I'm hoping um, as listeners to the show and, Movie Podcast Weekly will know. I have been on the road a lot recently, um, often absent from the podcast or calling in from the road. So I haven't had time to edit my other podcast, which um, I do all the post-production on. Jason thankfully edits all of this nonsense together. So um, it's a lot of extra work. And uh, and so I'm just getting to the point now where I'm going to be able to start up uh, – Movie streamcast again, but um, yeah. So look forward to some more episodes of that as well. But that's that's it. Thanks, guys. I, I just am really happy with our audience right now, and I'm happy with the the stuff that we're turning out. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's the golden years. Mm-hmm. It sure is. And Josh and I get along really well on this podcast, but we fight like cats and dogs on Movie Podcast Weekly. So if you guys want to hear us get mad at each other, on, oh yeah, on a weekly basis, check us out over there. And my only other plug is that. 
over at um, Zombie7.com, which is um, Ron Martin's podcast of the resurrection of Zombie 7, I was a special guest on episode 103 when we reviewed Saw 6. So check that out. (laughs) Wow. We'll have all this linked in the show notes. (laughs) And as we've said, we do love your comments. So uh, please, if, if you have not gotten involved in the horror movie podcast community, you know, jump into the fray, so to speak. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can even leave a voicemail at 801 382 8789. And um, you can find all our episodes. For horror movie podcast as well as our back archives for horror metropolis and the weekly horror movie podcast all that's at our site which is horrormoviepodcast.com you can subscribe free and itunes if you haven't already and you can follow us on twitter at horror movie cast and i want to thank fred ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song you can find more of fred's music at frederickingram.com and that'll be linked in the show notes too And I think that's it for episode 21. So thank you for listening and join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Our next movie is Friday the 13th, the final chapter, an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash that sold more tickets on its opening weekend than any other movie so far in 1984. And that is a very, very depressing commentary. It really makes me sad to think of all those moviegoers spending four and a half, five bucks, most of them teenage kids, sitting there watching this sad, cynical, depressing movie. Now, needless to say, Paramount Studios, the distributor of this film, didn't authorize any clips of the film for use on television. They like to make the money, but maybe they're a little bit ashamed of the movie. They like to hide it from critics like ourselves. But here are some scenes from the coming attractions trailer showing that the fourth Friday the 13th movie is just a cynical retread of the first three. Friday, the 13th, the final chapter. Yeah, real great. Uh, Jason, you can't hear him, you can't see him, he hardly even breathes. He's the latest word in leading men from the geniuses at Paramount Pictures. You get the idea. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, is 90 minutes of teenagers being strangled, stabbed, impaled, chopped up, and mutilated. That's all this movie is, is just mindless bloody violence. And just think of the message this film offers to its teenage audience. The world is a totally evil place, this movie says. It'll kill you. It doesn't matter what your dreams and hopes and ambitions are. It doesn't matter if you have a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or you've got plans for the future. You can forget those plans because you're going to wind up dead. There is literally nothing else in this movie. And the sickest thing is, this isn't the final chapter. That's just an advertising gimmick. The ending clearly sets up a sequel. And what I want to know is, I wonder if they're going to be heartless and cynical enough to make the sequel, because why not? They've already taken the bucket to the cesspool four times for the sludge. I think the people who made this who made this movie ought to be ashamed of themselves, and that's what I think, Gene. No. And I'm going to vote no. <laughs> I had a feeling you might. Uh, I got uh, as upset as you did. I don't know whether the, the, the teenagers, the message will be of this film that this, the world is hopeless out there because I think that anybody who sees this picture will see it either the way you did and mm-hmm. I did, which is that it's just a, a mayhem film. Or you might as well watch car accidents mm-hmm. edited together. Or they will think it's just a lark and just a fun. I don't think anyone's going to take this as a worldview picture. I really uh, don't. But wait I, a minute. See, the thing is they made the first one. Okay. I thought it was horrible. The hor- first one was horrible. Then they made the second one. Yeah. Then they made the third one. And 3D. Then 
they made this one. By now, all it is is the teenagers go to Crystal Lake and they're killed. Roger, we don't I have mean, a dispute about the film. The only point that I'm making... Have you, you seen you all got, four of them? What are they what, trying to tell you? No, no. Well, they're trying to give kids as a roller coaster ride. And instead of uh, the, th the thing of falling uh, off the roller coaster, it's mm -hmm. will, you get, will you get stabbed in some way. No, or will you get disemboweled no, and right. eviscerated. It's a terrible film. I'm just holding you back a okay. little bit from the, uh, what sounds a little bit soapboxy in terms of kids are going to take this as this is the way the world is. I don't think they'll do that. But what I am saying is this, that the film is literally about stabbing. In other words, if you like this picture, what you have liked, I believe, is the idea that someone will get a stick put through their body because that's the essence of this movie. Well, the no, surprise is, it's not surprising. I uh, did probably sound a little soapboxy, but I'll tell you, I'm not saying that kids are going to believe that. I'm saying this is what the message is in the movie. Now, I sat in a theater mm -hmm. and I I saw this with some kids, yeah. and they were. I, you watch them coming in. It's an R-rated picture. That means most of the people will be under 17. They're 13. They're 12. They're 14. Okay. It's garbage. They're coming in. They're sitting there for two hours. This is supposed to be fun. They're told it's fun. They see it advertised on television. It did a lot of okay. business. Their older brothers and sisters went okay. to see it. And what do they see for two hours? Just cynical uh, terrible. It's terrible. It's a terrible film. I think a much more interesting point is that the message that it sends out is not that this is the way the world is, but that now, now you've really got on the subject, which is that watching girls, and it's mostly girls mm -hmm. again, getting stuck mm -hmm. is entertainment. See, that's the it's that's sick. the pornography. It's really sick. That 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 this is legitimate entertainment too. That you can go to a theater. And the movie and pay for doubled it. its money in its first weekend. Okay. Isn't that wonderful? All right.